Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. The only fly in the ointment was that his own son, Michael Corleone, refused to be helped, insisted on volunteering to serve his own country. And, to the Don's astonishment, so did a few of his other young men in the organization. One of the men tried to explain this to his capo regime, said, This country has been good to me. Upon this story being relayed to the Don, he said angrily to the capo regime, I have been good to him. It might have gone badly for these people, but as he had excused his son Michael, so must he excuse other young men who so misunderstood their duty to their Don and to themselves. At the end of World War II, Don Corleone knew that again his world would have to change its ways, that it would have to fit itself more snugly into the ways of the other, larger world. He believed he could do this with no loss of profit. There was reason for this belief in his own experience. What had put him on the right track were two personal affairs. Early in his career, the then young Nazarene, only a baker's helper planning to get married, had come to him for assistance. He and his future bride, a good Italian girl, had saved their money and had paid the enormous sum of $300 to a wholesaler of furniture recommended to them. This wholesaler had let them pick out everything they wanted to furnish their tenement apartment, a fine, sturdy bedroom set with two bureaus and lamps. Also, the living room set of heavy stuffed sofa and stuffed armchairs, all covered with rich, gold-threaded fabric. Nazarini and his fiancée had spent a happy day picking out what they wanted from the huge warehouse crowded with furniture. The wholesaler took their money, their $300 wrung from the sweat of their blood, and pocketed it and promised the furniture to be delivered within the week to the already rented flat. The very next week, however, the firm had gone into bankruptcy. The great warehouse stocked with furniture had been sealed shut and attached for payment of creditors. The wholesaler had disappeared to give other creditors time to unleash their anger on the empty air. Nazarini, one of these, went to his lawyer, who told him nothing could be done until the case was settled in court and all creditors satisfied. This might take three years, and Nazarini would be lucky to get back ten cents on the dollar. Vito Corleone listened to this story with amused disbelief. It was not possible that the law could allow such thievery. The wholesaler owned his own palatial home and estate in Long Island, a luxurious automobile, and was sending his children to college. How could he keep the $300 of the poor baker Nazarene and not give him the furniture he had paid for? But to make sure, Vito Corleone had Genco Abandando check it out with the lawyers who represented the Genco Pura company. They verified the story of Nazarene. The wholesaler had all his personal wealth in his wife's name. His furniture business was incorporated, and he was not personally liable. True, he had shown bad faith by taking the money of Nazarene when he knew he was going to file bankruptcy. But... This was a common practice. Under law, there was nothing to be done. Of course, the matter was easily adjusted. Don Corleone sent his consigliere, Genco Abandando, to speak to the wholesaler, and, as was to be expected, that wide-awake businessman caught the drift immediately and arranged for Nazarini to get his furniture. But it was an interesting lesson for the young Vito Corleone. The second incident had more far-reaching repercussions. In 1939, Don Corleone had decided to move his family out of the city. Like any other parent, he wanted his children to go to better schools and mix with better companions. For his own personal reasons, he wanted the anonymity of suburban life where his reputation was not known. He bought the mall property in Long Beach, which at that time had only four newly built houses, but with plenty of room for more. Sonny was formally engaged to Sandra and would soon marry. One of the houses would be for him. One of the houses was for the Don. Another was for Genco Abandando and his family. The other was kept vacant at the time. A week after the mall was occupied, a group of three workmen came in all innocence with their truck. They claimed to be furnace inspectors for the town of Long Beach. 
One of the Don's young bodyguards let the men in and led them to the furnace in the basement. The Don, his wife, and Sonny were in the garden taking their ease and enjoying the salty sea air. Much to the Don's annoyance, he was summoned into the house by his bodyguard. The three workmen, all big burly fellows, were grouped around the furnace. They had taken it apart. It was strewn around the cement basement floor. Their leader, an authoritative man, said to the Don in a gruff voice, Your furnace is in lousy shape. If you want us to fix it and put it together again, it'll cost you $150 for labor and parts. Then we'll pass you to Fakani inspection. He took out a red paper label. We stamped a seal on it. See, then nobody from the county bothers you again. The Don was amused. It had been a boring, quiet week in which he had had to neglect his business to take care of such family details moving to a new house entailed. In more broken English than his usual slight accent, he asked, If I don't pay you, what happens to my furnace? The leader of the three men shrugged. We just leave the furnace the way it is now. He gestured at the metal parts strewn over the floor. The Don said meekly, Wait, I'll uh, get you your money. Then he went out into the garden and said to Sonny, Listen, uh, there's uh, some men uh, working on the furnace. I don't understand uh, what they want. Uh, go in and uh, take care of the matter. It was not simply a joke. He was considering making his son his underboss. This was one of the tests a business executive had to pass. Sonny's solution did not altogether please his father. It was too direct, too lacking in Sicilian subtleness. He was the club, not the rapier. For as soon as Sonny heard the leader's demand, he held the three men at gunpoint and had them thoroughly bastinadoed by the bodyguards. Then he made them put the furnace together again and tidy up the basement. He searched them and found that they actually were employed by a house improvement firm with headquarters in Suffolk County. He learned the name of the man who owned the firm. Then he kicked the three men to their truck. Don't let me see you in Long Beach again. I'll have your balls hanging from your ears. It was typical of the young Santino, before he became older and crueler, that he extended his protection to the community he lived in. Sonny paid a personal call to the home improvement firm owner and told him not to send any of his men into the Long Beach area ever again. As soon as the Corleone family set up their usual business liaison with the local police force, they were informed of all such complaints and all crimes by professional criminals. In less than a year, Long Beach became the most crime-free town of its size in the United States. Professional stick-up artists and strong arms received one warning not to ply their trade in the town. They were allowed one offense, when they committed a second, they simply disappeared. The flim-flam home improvement chip artists, the door-to-door -door con men, were politely warned that they were not welcome in Long Beach. Those confident con men who disregarded the warning were beaten within an inch of their lives. Resident young punks who had no respect for law and proper authority were advised in the most fatherly fashion to run away from home. Long Beach became a model city. What impressed the Don was the legal validity of these sales swindles. Clearly there was a place for a man of his talents in that other world which had been closed to him as an honest youth. He took appropriate steps to enter that world. And so he lived happily on the mall in Long Beach, consolidating and enlarging his empire, until, after the war was over, the Turk Salazzo broke the peace and plunged the Don's world into its own war and brought him to his hospital bed. Book 4, Chapter 15 in the New Hampshire village, every foreign phenomenon was properly noticed by housewives peering from windows, storekeepers lounging behind their doors. And so, when the black automobile bearing New York license plates stopped in front of the Adams home, every citizen knew about it in a matter of minutes. Kay Adams, really a small-town girl despite her college education, was also peering from her bedroom window. 
She had been studying for her exams and preparing to go downstairs for lunch when she spotted the car coming up the street, and for some reason, she was not surprised when it rolled to a halt in front of her lawn. Two men got out, big burly men who looked like gangsters in the movies to her eyes, and she flew down the stairs to be the first at the door. She was sure they came from Michael or his family, and she didn't want them talking to her father and mother without any introduction. It wasn't that she was ashamed of any of Mike's friends, she thought. It was just that her mother and father were old-fashioned New England Yankees and wouldn't understand her even knowing such people. She got to the door just as the bell rang, and she called to her mother, I'll get it. She opened the door, and the two big men stood there. One reached inside his breast pocket like a gangster reaching for a gun, and the move so surprised Kay that she let out a little gasp. But the man had taken out a small leather case, which he flapped open to show an identification card. I'm Detective John Phillips from the New York Police Department. He motioned to the other man, a dark-complexioned man with very thick, very black eyebrows. This is my partner, Detective Siriani. Are you Miss Kay Adams? Kay nodded. May we come in and talk to you for a few minutes? It's about Michael Corleone. She stood aside to let them in. At that moment, her father appeared in the small side hall that led to his study. Kay, what is it? Her father was a gray-haired, slender, distinguished-looking man who not only was the pastor of the town Baptist Church, but had a reputation in religious circles as a scholar. Kay really didn't know her father well. He puzzled her, but she knew he loved her, even if he gave the impression he found her uninteresting as a person. Though they had never been close, she trusted him. So, she said simply, These men are detectives from New York. They want to ask me questions about a boy I know. Mr. Adams didn't seem surprised. Why don't we go into my study? We'd rather talk to your daughter alone, Mr. Adams. Now, that depends on Kay, I think. My dear, would you rather speak to these gentlemen alone, or would you prefer to have me present? Or perhaps your mother? Kay shook her head. I'll talk to them alone. You can use my study. Will you stay for lunch? The two men shook their heads. Kay led them into the study. They rested uncomfortably on the edge of the couch as she sat in her father's big leather chair. Detective Phillips opened the conversation. Miss Adams, have you seen or heard from Michael Corleone at any time in the last three weeks? The one question was enough to warn her. Three weeks ago, she had read the Boston newspapers with their headlines about the killing of a New York police captain and a narcotics smuggler named Virgil Salazzo. The newspaper had said it was part of the gang war involving the Corleone family. Kay shook her head. No, the last time I saw him, he was going to see his father in the hospital. That was perhaps a month ago. The other detective said in a harsh voice, We know all about that meeting. Have you seen or heard from him since then? No. If you do have contact with him, we'd like you to let us know. It's very important we get to talk to Michael Corleone. I must warn you that if you do have contact with him, you may be getting involved in a very dangerous situation. If you help him in any way, you may get yourself in very serious trouble. Kay sat up very straight in the chair. Why shouldn't I help him? We're going to be married. Married people help each other. It was Detective Siriani who answered her. If you help, you may be an accessory to murder. We're looking for your boyfriend because he killed the police captain in New York, plus an informer the police officer was contacting. We know Michael Corleone is the person who did the shooting. Kay laughed. Her laughter was so unaffected, so incredulous, that the officers were impressed. Mike wouldn't do anything like that. He never had anything to do with his family. When we went to his sister's wedding, it was obvious that he was treated as an outsider, almost as much as I was. If he's hiding now, it's just so that he won't get any publicity, so that his name won't be dragged through all this. Mike is not a gangster. I know him better than you, or anybody else can know him. 
He's too nice a man to do anything as despicable as murder. He is the most law-abiding person I know, and I've never known him to lie. How long have you known him? Over a year. Kay was surprised when the two men smiled. I think there are a few things you should know. On the night he left you, he went to the hospital. When he came out, he got into an argument with a police captain who had come to the hospital on official business. He assaulted that police officer, but got the worst of it. In fact, he got a broken jaw and lost some teeth. His friends took him out to the Corleone family houses at Long Beach. The following night, the police captain he had to fight with was gunned down, and Michael Corleone disappeared. Vanished. We have our contacts, our informers. They all point the finger at Michael Corleone, but we have no evidence for a court of law. The waiter who witnessed the shooting doesn't recognize a picture of Mike, but he may recognize him in person. And we have Salazzo's driver, who refuses to talk. But we might make him talk if we have Michael Corleone in our hands. So we have all our people looking for him. The FBI is looking for him. Everybody's looking for him. So far, no luck. So we thought you might be able to give us a lead. I don't believe a word of it. But she felt a bit sick, knowing the part about Mike getting his jaw broken must be true. Not that that would make Mike commit murder. Will you let us know if Mike contacts you? Kay shook her head. The other detective, Sirianni, said roughly, We know you two have been shacking up together. We have the hotel records and witnesses. If we let that information slip to the newspapers, your father and mother will feel pretty lousy. Real respectable people like that wouldn't think much of a daughter shacking up with a gangster. If you don't come clean right now, I'll call your old man in here and give it to him straight. Kay looked at him with astonishment. Then she got up and went to the door of the study and opened it. She could see her father standing at the living room window, sucking at his pipe. She called out, Dad, can you join us? He turned, smiled at her, and walked to the study. When he came through the door, he put his arm around his daughter's waist and faced the detectives. Yes, gentlemen? When they didn't answer, Kay said coolly to Detective Siriani, Give it to him straight, officer. Siriani flushed. M Mr. Adams, I'm telling you this for your daughter's good. She's mixed up with a hoodlum we have reason to believe committed a murder on a police officer. I'm just telling her she can get into serious trouble unless she cooperates with us. But she doesn't seem to realize how serious this whole matter is. Maybe you can talk to her. That is quite incredible. Siriani jutted his jaw. Your daughter and Michael Corleone have been going out together for over a year. They have stayed overnight in hotels together registered as man and wife. Michael Corleone is wanted for questioning in the murder of a police officer. Your daughter refuses to give us any information that may help us. Those are the facts. You can call them incredible, but I can back everything up. I don't doubt your word, sir. What I find incredible is that my daughter could be in serious trouble. Unless you're suggesting that she is a... Um, Here, his face became one of scholarly doubt. A mall, I believe it's called. Kay looked at her father in astonishment. She knew he was being playful in his donnish way, and she was surprised that he could take the whole affair so lightly. However, rest assured that if the young man shows his face here, I shall immediately report his presence to the authorities, as will my daughter. And now, if you will forgive us, our lunch is growing cold. He ushered the men out of the house with every courtesy and closed the door on their backs, gently but firmly. He took Kay by the arm and led her toward the kitchen, far in the rear of the house. Come, my dear. Your mother is waiting lunch for us. By the time they reached the kitchen, Kay was weeping silently, out of relief from strain at her father's unquestioning affection. In the kitchen, her mother took no notice of her weeping, and Kay realized that her father must have told her about the two detectives. She sat down at her place, and her mother served her silently. When all three were at the table, 
her father said grace with bowed head. Mrs. Adams was a short, stout woman, always neatly dressed, hair always set. Kay had never seen her in disarray. Her mother, too, had always been a little disinterested in her, holding her at arm's length. And she did so now. Kay, stop being so dramatic. I'm sure it's all a great deal of fuss about nothing at all. After all, the boy was a Dartmouth boy. He couldn't possibly be mixed up in anything so sordid. Kay looked up in surprise. How did you know Mike went to Dartmouth? You young people are so mysterious. You think you're so clever. We've known about him all along, but of course we couldn't bring it up until you did. But how did you know? She still couldn't face her father, now that he knew about her and Mike sleeping together. So she didn't see the smile on his face. We opened your mail, of course. Kay was horrified and angry. Now she could face him. What he had done was more shameful than her own sin. She could never believe it of him. Father, you didn't. You couldn't have. Mr. Adams smiled at her. I debated which was the greater sin, opening your mail or going in ignorance of some hazard my only child might be incurring. The choice was simple and virtuous. Between mouthfuls of boiled chicken, Mrs. Adams said, After all, my dear, you are terribly innocent for your age. We had to be aware, and you never spoke about him. For the first time, Kay was grateful that Michael was never affectionate in his letters. She was grateful that her parents hadn't seen some of her letters. I never told you about him because I thought you'd be horrified about his family. We were. By the way, has Michael gotten in touch with you? Kay shook her head. I don't believe he's guilty of anything. She saw her parents exchange a glance over the table. Then Mr. Adams said gently, If he's not guilty and he's vanished, then perhaps something else happened to him. At first, Kay didn't understand. Then she got up from the table and ran to her room. Three days later, Kay Adams got out of a taxi in front of the Corleone Mall in Long Beach. She had phoned. She was expected. Tom Hagen met her at the door, and she was disappointed that it was him. She knew he would tell her nothing. In the living room, he gave her a drink. She had seen a couple of other men lounging around the house, but not Sonny. She asked Tom Hagen directly. Do you know where Mike is? Do you know where I can get in touch with him? We know he's all right, but we don't know where he is right now. When he heard about that captain being shot, he was afraid they'd accuse him, so he just decided to disappear. He told me he'd get in touch in a few months. The story was not only false, but meant to be seen through. He was giving her that much. Did that captain really break his jaw? I'm afraid that's true. But Mike was never a vindictive man. I'm sure that had nothing to do with what happened. Kay opened her purse and took out a letter. Will you deliver this to him if he gets in touch with you? Hagen shook his head. If I accepted that letter and you told a court of law I accepted that letter, it might be interpreted as my having knowledge of his whereabouts. Why don't you just wait a bit? I'm sure Mike will get in touch. She finished her drink and got up to leave. Hagen escorted her to the hall. But as he opened the door, a woman came in from outside, a short, stout woman dressed in black. Kay recognized her as Michael's mother. She held out her hand. How are you, Mrs. Corleone? The woman's small black eyes darted at her for a moment. Then the wrinkled, leathery, olive-skinned face broke into a small, curt smile of greeting that was yet in some curious way truly friendly. Ah, you Mikey's little girl. She had a heavy Italian accent. Kay could barely understand her. You eat something? Kay said no, meaning she didn't want anything to eat. But Mrs. Corleone turned furiously on Tom Hagen and berated him in Italian, ending with... You don't even give it his poor girl coffee, you disgrazia. She took Kay by the hand, the old woman's hand, surprisingly warm and alive, and led her into the kitchen. You have a coffee and eat something. 
than somebody driving you home. A nice girl like you, I don't want you to take the train. She made Kay sit down and bustled around the kitchen, tearing off her coat and hat and draping them over a chair. In a few seconds, there was bread and cheese and salami on the table and coffee perking on the stove. I came to ask about Mike. I haven't heard from him. Mr. Hagen said nobody knows where he is, that he'll turn up in a little while. That's all we can tell her now, Ma. Mrs. Corleone gave him a look of withering contempt. Now you gonna tell me what to do? My husband don't tell me what to do. God have mercy on him. She crossed herself. Is Mr. Corleone all right? Fine. Fine. He's getting old. He's getting foolish to let something like that happen. She tapped her head disrespectfully. She poured the coffee and forced Kay to eat some bread and cheese. After they drank their coffee, Mrs. Corleone took one of Kay's hands and her two brown ones. Mikey no gonna write to you. You no gonna hear from Mikey. He hide two, three years, maybe more. Maybe much more. You go home to your family and find a nice young fellow and get married. Kay took the letter out of her purse. Will you send this to him? The old lady took the letter and patted Kay on the cheek. Sure, sure. Hagen started to protest, and she screamed to him in Italian. Then she led Kay to the door. There she kissed her on the cheek very quickly. You forget about Mikey. He no demand for you anymore. There was a car waiting for her with two men up front. They drove her all the way to her hotel in New York, never saying a word. Neither did Kay. She was trying to get used to the fact that the young man she had loved was a cold-blooded murderer and that she had been told by the most unimpeachable source, his mother. Chapter 16 Carlo Rizzi was punk sore at the world. Once married into the Corleone family, he'd been shunted aside with a small bookmaker's business on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. He'd counted on one of the houses in the mall on Long Beach. He knew the Don could move retainer families out when he pleased, and he had been sure it would happen, and he would be on the inside of everything. But the Don wasn't treating him right. The great Don, he thought with scorn. An old mustache Pete who'd been caught out on the street by gunmen like any dumb small-time hood. He hoped the old bastard croaked. Sonny had been his friend once, and if Sonny became the head of the family, maybe he'd get a break. Get on the inside. He watched his wife pour his coffee. Christ, what a mess she turned out to be. Five months of marriage and she was already spreading, besides blowing up, real guinea broads, all these Italians in the East. He reached out and felt Connie's soft, spreading buttocks. She smiled at him and he said contemptuously, You got more ham than a hog. It pleased him to see the hurt look on her face, the tears springing into her eyes. She might be the daughter of the great Don, but she was his wife. She was his property now, and he could treat her as he pleased. It made him feel powerful that one of the Corleones was his doormat. He had started her off just right. She had tried to keep that purse full of money presents for herself, and he had given her a nice black eye and taken the money from her. Never told her what he'd done with it, either. That might have really caused some trouble. Even now, he felt just the slightest twinge of remorse. Christ, he'd blown nearly 15 grand on the track and showgirl bimbos. He could feel Connie watching his back, and so he flexed his muscles as he reached for the plate of sweet buns on the other side of the table. He just polished off ham and eggs, but he was a big man and needed a big breakfast. He was pleased with the picture he knew he presented to his wife. Not the usual greasy, dark Ginzo husband, but 
Crew-cut blonde, huge golden-haired forearms and broad shoulders and thin waist, and he knew he was physically stronger than any of those so-called hard guys that work for the family. Guys like Clemenza, Tessio, Rocco Lampone, and that guy Pauly that somebody had knocked off. He wondered what the story was about that. Then, for some reason, he thought about Sonny. Man to man, he could take Sonny, he thought, even though Sonny was a little bigger and a little heavier. But what scared him was Sonny's rep, though he himself had never seen Sonny anything but good-natured and kidding around. Yeah, Sonny was his buddy. Maybe with the old Don gone, things would open up. He dawdled over his coffee. He hated this apartment. He was used to the bigger living quarters of the West. And in a little while, he would have to go cross town to his book to run the noontime action. It was a Sunday, the heaviest action of the week, what with baseball going already and the tail end of basketball and the night trotters starting up. Gradually, he became aware of Connie bustling around behind him, and he turned his head to watch her. She was getting dressed up in the real New York City Ginzo style that he hated, a silk flower pattern dressed with belt, showy bracelet and earrings, flouncy sleeves. She looked 20 years older. Where the hell are you going? She answered him coldly. To see my father out in Long Beach. He still can't get out of bed, and he needs company. Carlo was curious. Is Sonny still running the show? Connie gave him a bland look. What show? He was furious. You lousy little guinea bitch. Don't talk to me like that or I'll beat that kid right out of your belly. She looked frightened, and this enraged him even more. He sprang from his chair and slapped her across the face, the blow leaving a red welt. With quick precision, he slapped her three more times. He saw her upper lip split bloody and puff up. That stopped him. He didn't want to leave a mark. She ran into the bedroom and slammed the door, and he heard the key turning in the lock. He laughed and returned to his coffee. He smoked until it was time for him to dress. He knocked on the door and said, Open it up before I kick it in. There was no answer. Come on, I gotta get dressed. He could hear her getting up off the bed and coming toward the door. Then the key turned in the lock. When he entered, she had her back to him, walking back toward the bed, lying down on it with her face turned away to the wall. He dressed quickly and then saw she was in her slip. He wanted her to go visit her father. He hoped she would bring back information. What's the matter? A few slaps take all the energy out of you? She was a lazy slut. I don't want to go. Her voice was tearful. The words mumbled. He reached out impatiently and pulled her around to face him. And then he saw why she didn't want to go and thought maybe it was just as well. He must have slapped her harder than he figured. Her left cheek was blown up, the cut upper lip ballooned grotesquely puffy and white beneath her nose. Okay, but I won't be home until late. Sunday's my busy day. He left the apartment and found a parking ticket on his car, a $15 green one. He put it in the glove compartment with the stack of others. He was in a good humor. Slapping the spoiled little bitch around always made him feel good. It dissolved some of the frustration he felt at being treated so badly by the Corleones. The first time he had marked her up, he'd been a little worried. She'd gone right out to Long Beach to complain to her mother and father and to show her black eye. He had really sweated it out. But when she came back, she had been surprisingly meek, the dutiful little Italian wife. He had made it a point to be the perfect husband over the next few weeks, treating her well in every way, being lovey and nice with her, banging her every day, morning and night. Finally, she had told him what had happened, since she thought he would never act that way again. She had found her parents coolly unsympathetic and curiously amused. Her mother had had a little sympathy and had even asked her father to speak to Carlo Rizzi. Her father had refused. 
She is my daughter, he had said, but now she belongs to her husband. He knows his duties. Even the king of Italy didn't dare to meddle with the relationship of husband and wife. Go home and learn how to behave so that he will not beat you. Connie had said angrily to her father, Did you ever hit your wife? She was his favorite and could speak to him so imprudently. He had answered, She never gave me reason to beat her, and her mother had nodded and smiled. She told them how her husband had taken the wedding present money and never told her what he did with it. Her father had shrugged and said, I would have done the same if my wife had been as presumptuous as you. And so she had returned home a little bewildered, a little frightened. She had always been her father's favorite, and she could not understand his coldness now. But the Don had not been so unsympathetic as he pretended. He made inquiries and found out what Carlo Rizzi had done with the wedding present money. He had men assigned to Carlo Rizzi's bookmaking operation who would report to Hagen everything Rizzi did on the job. But the Don could not interfere. How expect a man to discharge his husbandly duties to a wife whose family he feared? It was an impossible situation, and he dared not meddle. Then, when Connie became pregnant, he was convinced of the wisdom of his decision and felt he never could interfere, though Connie complained to her mother about a few more beatings, and the mother finally became concerned enough to mention it to the Don. Connie even hinted that she might want a divorce. For the first time in her life, the Don was angry with her. He is the father of your child. What can a child come to in this world if he has no father, he said to Connie. Learning all this, Carlo Rizzi grew confident. He was perfectly safe. In fact, he bragged to his two writers on the book, Sally Rags and Coach, about how he bounced his wife around when she got snotty and saw their looks of respect that he had the guts to manhandle the daughter of the great Don Corleone. But Rizzi would not have felt so safe if he had known that when Sonny Corleone learned of the beatings, he had flown into a murderous rage and had been restrained only by the sternest and most imperious command of the Don himself, a command that even Sonny dared not disobey, which was why Sonny avoided Rizzi, not trusting himself to control his temper. So, feeling perfectly safe on this beautiful Sunday morning, Carlo Rizzi sped cross town on 96th Street to the east side. He did not see Sonny's car coming the opposite way toward his house. Sonny Corleone had left the protection of the mall and spent the night with Lucy Mancini in town. Now, on the way home, he was traveling with four bodyguards, two in front and two behind. He didn't need guards right beside him. He could take care of a single direct assault. The other men traveled in their own cars and had apartments on either side of Lucy's apartment. It was safe to visit her as long as he didn't do it too often. But now that he was in town, he figured he would pick up his sister Connie and take her out to Long Beach. He knew Carlo would be working at his book and the cheap bastard wouldn't get her a car. So he'd give his sister a lift out. He waited for the two men in front to go into the building and then followed them. He saw the two men in back pull up behind his car and get out to watch the streets. He kept his own eyes open. It was a million-to-one shot that the opposition even knew he was in town, but he was always careful. He had learned that in the 1930s war. He never used elevators. They were death traps. He climbed the eight flights to Connie's apartment, going fast. He knocked on her door. He had seen Carlo's car go by and knew she would be alone. There was no answer. He knocked again, and then he heard his sister's voice, frightened, timid. Who is it? The fright in the voice stunned him. His kid sister had always been fresh and snotty, tough as anybody in the family. What the hell had happened to her? It's Sonny. The bolt inside slid back, and the door opened, and Connie was in his arms, sobbing. He was so surprised, he just stood there. He pushed her away from him and saw her swollen face, and he understood what had happened. 
He pulled away from her to run down the stairs and go after her husband. Rage flamed up in him, contorting his own face. Connie saw the rage and clung to him, not letting him go, making him come into the apartment. She was weeping out of terror now. She knew her older brother's temper and feared it. She had never complained to him about Carlo for that reason. Now she made him come into the apartment with her. It was my fault. I started a fight with him and I tried to hit him, so he hit me. He really didn't try to hit me that hard. I walked into it. Sonny's heavy, cupid face was under control. You going to see the old man today? She didn't answer, so he added, I thought you were, so I dropped over to give you a lift. I was in the city anyway. She shook her head. I don't want them to see me this way. I'll come next week. Okay. He picked up her kitchen phone and dialed a number. I'm getting a doctor to come over here and take a look at you and fix you up. In your condition, you have to be careful. How many months before you have the kid? Two months. Sonny, please don't do anything. Please don't. Sonny laughed. His face was cruelly intent. Don't worry, I won't make your kid an orphan before he's born. He left the apartment after kissing her lightly on her uninjured cheek. On East 112th Street, a long line of cars were double-parked in front of a candy store that was the headquarters of Carlo Rizzi's book. On the sidewalk in front of the store, fathers played catch with small children they had taken for a Sunday morning ride and to keep them company as they placed their bets. When they saw Carlo Rizzi coming, they stopped playing ball and bought their kids ice cream to keep them quiet. Then they started studying the newspapers that gave the starting pitchers, trying to pick out winning baseball bets for the day. Carlo went into the large room in the back of the store. His two writers, a small, wiry man called Sally Rags and a big husky fellow called Coach, were already waiting for the action to start. They had their huge, lined pads in front of them ready to write down bets. On a wooden stand was a blackboard with the names of the 16 big league baseball teams chalked on it, paired to show who was playing against who. Against each pairing was a blocked-out square to enter the odds. Carlo asked Coach, Is the store phone tapped today? Coach shook his head. Uh, tap is still off. Carlo went to the wall phone and dialed a number. Sally Rags and Coach watched him impassively as he jotted down the line, the odds on all baseball games for that day. They watched him as he hung up the phone and walked over to the blackboard and chalked up the odds against each game. Though Carlo did not know it, they had already gotten the line and were checking his work. In the first week in his job, Carlo had made a mistake in transposing the odds onto the blackboard and had created that dream of all gamblers, a middle. That is, by betting the odds with him and then betting against the same team with another bookmaker at the correct odds, the gambler could not lose. The only one who could lose was Carlo's book. That mistake had caused a $6,000 loss in the book for the week and confirmed the Don's judgment about his son-in-law. He had given the word that all of Carlo's work was to be checked. Normally, the highly placed members of the Corleone family would never be concerned with such an operational detail. There was at least a five-layer insulation to their level. But since the book was being used as a testing ground for the son-in-law, it had been placed under the direct scrutiny of Tom Hagen, to whom a report was sent every day. Now, with the line posted, the gamblers were thronging into the back room of the candy store to jot down the odds on their newspapers next to the games printed there with probable pictures. Some of them held their little children by the hand as they looked up at the blackboard. One guy who made big bets looked down at the little girl he was holding by the hand and said teasingly, Who do you like today, honey, Giants or the Pirates? The little girl, fascinated by the colorful name, said, Are Giants stronger than Pirates? The father laughed. A line began to form in front of the two writers. 
When a writer filled one of his sheets, he tore it off, wrapped the money he had collected in it, and handed it to Carlo. Carlo went out the back, exited the room, and up a flight of steps to an apartment which housed the candy store owner's family. He called in the bets to his central exchange and put the money in a small wall safe that was hidden by an extended window drape. Then he went back down into the candy store after having first burned the bet sheet and flushed its ashes down the toilet bowl. None of the Sunday games started before 2 p.m. because of the blue laws. So, after the first crowd of bettors, family men who had to get their bets in and rush home to take their families to the beach, came the trickling of bachelor gamblers or the diehards who condemned their families to Sundays in the hot city apartments. These bachelor bettors were the big gamblers. They bet heavier and came back around 4 o'clock to bet the second games of doubleheaders. They were the ones who made Carlos Sundays a full-time day with overtime, though some married men called in from the beach to try and recoup their losses. By 1.30, the betting had trickled off so that Carlo and Sally Rags could go out and sit on a stoop beside the candy store and get some fresh air. They watched the stickball game the kids were having. A police car went by. They ignored it. This book had very heavy protection at the precinct and couldn't be touched on a local level. A raid would have to be ordered from the very top, and even then, a warning would come through in plenty of time. Coach came out and sat beside them. They gossiped a while about baseball and women. Carlo said laughingly, <laughs> I had to bat my wife around again today, teacher who's boss. Coach said casually. She's knocked up pretty big now, ain't she? Yeah, I just slapped her face a few times. I didn't hurt her. He brooded for a moment. She thinks she can boss me around. I don't stand for that. There were still a few betters hanging around, shooting the breeze, talking baseball, some of them sitting on the steps above the two writers and Carlo. Suddenly, the kids playing stickball in the street scattered. A car came screeching up the block and to a halt in front of the candy store. It stopped so abruptly that the tires screamed, and before it had stopped, almost, a man came hurtling out of the driver's seat, moving so fast that everybody was paralyzed. The man was Sonny Corleone. His heavy, cupid-featured face with its thick, curved mouth was an ugly mask of fury. In a split second, he was at the stoop and had grabbed Carlo Rizzi by the throat. He pulled Carlo away from the others, trying to drag him into the street, but Carlo wrapped his huge, muscular arms around the iron railings of the stoop and hung on. He cringed away, trying to hide his head and face in the hollow of his shoulders. His shirt ripped away in Sonny's hand. What followed then was sickening. Sonny began beating the cowering Carlo with his fists, cursing him in a thick, rage-choked voice. Carlo, despite his tremendous physique, offered no resistance, gave no cry for mercy or protest. Coach and Sally Rags dared not interfere. They thought Sonny meant to kill his brother-in-law and had no desire to share his fate. The kids playing stickball gathered to curse the driver who had made them scatter, but now were watching with awestruck interest. They were tough kids, but the sight of Sonny in his rage silenced them. Meanwhile, another car had drawn up behind Sonny's, and two of his bodyguards jumped out. When they saw what was happening, they too dared not interfere. They stood alert, ready to protect their chief if any bystanders had the stupidity to try to help Carlo. What made the sight sickening was Carlo's complete subjection. But it was perhaps this that saved his life. He clung to the iron railings with his hands so that Sonny could not drag him into the street, and despite his obvious equal strength, still refused to fight back. He let the blows rain on his unprotected head and neck until Sonny's rage ebbed. Finally, his chest heaving, Sonny looked down at him and said, You dirty bastard. You ever beat up my sister again, I'll kill you. These words released the tension. Because, of course, if Sonny intended to kill the man, he would never have uttered the threat.
He uttered it in frustration because he could not carry it out. Carlo refused to look at Sonny. He kept his head down and his hands and arms entwined in the iron railing. He stayed that way until the car roared off, and he heard Coach say in his curiously paternal voice, Okay, Carlo, come on into the store. Let's get out of sight. It was only then that Carlo dared to get out of his crouch against the stone steps of the stoop and unlock his hands from the railing. Standing up, he could see the kids look at him with the staring, sickened faces of people who had witnessed the degradation of a fellow human being. He was a little dizzy, but it was more from shock, the raw fear that had taken command of his body. He was not badly hurt despite the shower of heavy blows. He let Coach lead him by the arm into the back room of the candy store and put ice on his face which, though it was not cut or bleeding, was lumpy with swelling bruises. The fear was subsiding now, and the humiliation he had suffered made him sick to his stomach so that he had to throw up. Coach held his head over the sink, supported him as if he were drunk, then helped him upstairs to the apartment and made him lie down in one of the bedrooms. Carlo never noticed that Sally Rags had disappeared. Sally Rags had walked down to 3rd Avenue and called Rocco Lamponi to report what had happened. Rocco took the news calmly and in his turn called his capo regime, Pete Clemenza. Clemenza groaned. Oh, Christ! That goddamn Sonny and his temper! But his finger had prudently clicked down on the hook so that Rocco never heard his remark. Clemenza called the house in Long Beach and got Tom Hagen. Hagen was silent for a moment, and then he said, Send some of your people and cars out on the road to Long Beach as soon as you can, just in case Sonny gets held up by traffic or an accident. When he gets sore like that, he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Maybe some of our friends on the other side will hear he was in town. You never can tell. Yeah, by the time I could get anybody on the road, Sonny will be home. That goes for the Tatalias, too. I know. But if something out of the ordinary happens, Sonny may be held up. Do the best you can, Pete. Grudgingly, Clemenza called Rocco Lamponi and told him to get a few people in cars and cover the road to Long Beach. He himself went out to his beloved Cadillac and with three of the platoon of guards who now garrisoned his home, started over the Atlantic Beach Bridge toward New York City. One of the hangers-on around the candy store, a small better on the payroll of the Tatalia family, as an informer, called the contact he had with his people. But the Tatalia family had not streamlined itself for the war. The contact still had to go all the way through the insulation layers before he finally got to the capo regime who contacted the Tatalia chief. By that time, Sonny Corleone was safely back in the mall in his father's house in Long Beach, about to face his father's wrath. Chapter 17 the War of 1947 between the Corleone family and the five families combined against them proved to be expensive for both sides. It was complicated by the police pressure put on everybody to solve the murder of Captain McCluskey. It was rare that operating officials of the police department ignored political muscle that protected gambling and vice operations. But in this case, the politicians were as helpless as the general staff of a rampaging, looting army whose field officers refused to follow orders. This lack of protection did not hurt the Corleone family as much as it did their opponents. The Corleone group depended on gambling for most of its income and was hit especially hard in its numbers or policy branch of operations. The runners who picked up the action were swept into police nets and usually given a medium shellacking before being booked. Even some of the banks were located and raided with heavy financial loss. The bankers, 90 calibers in their own right, complained to the capo regime who brought their complaints to the family council table. But there was nothing to be done. The bankers were told to go out of business. Local Negro freelancers were allowed to take over the operation in Harlem, the richest territory, and they operated in such scattered fashion that the police found it hard to pin them down. 
After the death of Captain McCluskey, some newspapers printed stories involving him with Salazzo. They published proof that McCluskey had received large sums of money in cash shortly before his death. These stories had been planted by Hagen, the information supplied by him. The police department refused to confirm or deny these stories, but they were taking effect. The police force got the word through informers, through police on the family payroll, that McCluskey had been a rogue cop. Not that he had taken money or clean graft. There was no rank-and-file onus to that, but that he had taken the dirtiest of dirty money, murder and drugs money. And in the morality of policemen, this was unforgivable. Hagen understood that the policeman believes in law and order in a curiously innocent way. He believes in it more than does the public he serves. Law and order is, after all, the magic from which he derives his power. Individual power, which he cherishes, as nearly all men cherish individual power. And yet, there is always the smoldering resentment against the public he serves. They are at the same time his ward and his prey. As wards, they are ungrateful, abusive, and demanding. As prey, they are slippery and dangerous, full of guile. As soon as one is in the policeman's clutches, the mechanism of the society the policeman defends marshals all its resources to cheat him of his prize. The fix is put in by politicians. Judges give lenient suspended sentences to the worst hoodlums. Governors of the states and the president of the United States himself give full pardons, assuming that respected lawyers have not already won his acquittal. After a time, the cop learns. Why should he not collect the fees these hoodlums are paying? He needs it more, his children. Why should they not go to college? Why shouldn't his wife shop in more expensive places? Why shouldn't he himself get the son with a winter vacation in Florida? After all, he risks his life, and that is no joke. But usually, he draws the line against accepting dirty graft. He will take money to let a bookmaker operate. He will take money from a man who hates getting parking tickets or speeding tickets. He will allow call girls and prostitutes to ply their trade for a consideration. These are vices natural to man. But usually, he will not take a payoff for drugs, armed robberies, rape, murder, and other assorted perversions. In his mind, these attack the very core of his personal authority and cannot be countenanced. The murder of a police captain was comparable to regicide. But when it became known that McCluskey had been killed while in the company of a notorious narcotics peddler, when it became known that he was suspected of conspiracy to murder, the police desire for vengeance began to fade. Also, after all, there were still mortgage payments to be made, cars to be paid off, children to be launched into the world. Without their sheet money, policemen had to scramble to make ends meet. Unlicensed peddlers were good for lunch money. Parking ticket payoffs came to nickels and dimes. Some of the more desperate even began shaking down suspects, homosexuals, assaults, and batteries, in the precinct squad rooms. Finally, the brass relented. They raised the prices and let the families operate. Once again, the payoff sheet was typed up by the precinct bagman, listing every man assigned to the local station and what his cut was each month. Some semblance of social order was restored. It had been Hagen's idea to use private detectives to guard Don Corleone's hospital room. These were, of course, supplemented by the much more formidable soldiers of Tessio's regime. But Sonny was not satisfied even with this. By the middle of February, when the Don could be moved without danger, he was taken by ambulance to his home in the mall. The house had been renovated so that his bedroom was now a hospital room with all equipment necessary for any emergency. Nurses, specially recruited and checked, had been hired for round-the-clock care, and Dr. Kennedy, with the payment of a huge fee, had been persuaded to become the physician in residence to this private hospital, at least until the Don would need only nursing care. The mall itself was made impregnable. 
Button men were moved into the extra houses. The tenants sent on vacations to their native villages in Italy, all expenses paid. Freddy Corleone had been sent to Las Vegas to recuperate and also to scout out the ground for a family operation in the luxury hotel gambling casino complex that was springing up. Las Vegas was part of the West Coast Empire, still neutral, and the dawn of that empire had guaranteed Freddy's safety there. The New York Five families had no desire to make more enemies by going into Vegas after Freddy Corleone. They had enough trouble on their hands in New York. Dr. Kennedy had forbade any discussion of business in front of the Don. This edict was completely disregarded. The Don insisted on the Council of War being held in his room. Sonny, Tom Hagen, Pete Clemenza, and Tessio gathered there the very first night of his homecoming. Don Corleone was too weak to speak much, but he wished to listen and exercise veto powers. When it was explained that Freddy had been sent to Las Vegas to learn the gambling casino business, he nodded his head approvingly. When he learned that Bruno Tattaglia had been killed by Corleone button men, he shook his head and sighed. But what distressed him most of all was learning that Michael had killed Salazzo and Captain McCluskey and had then been forced to flee to Sicily. When he heard this, he motioned them out, and they continued the conference in the corner room that held the law library. Sonny Corleone relaxed in the huge armchair behind the desk. I think we'd better let the old man take it easy for a couple of weeks, until a doc says he can do business. He paused. I'd like to have it going again before it gets better. We had the go-ahead from the cops to operate. The first thing is the policy banks in Harlem. The black boys up there had their fun. Now we have to take it back. They screwed up the works, but good, just like they usually do when they run things. A lot of their runners didn't pay off winners. They drive up in Cadillacs and tell their players they got to wait for their dough, or maybe just pay them half what they win. I don't want any runner looking rich to his players. I don't want them dressing too good. I don't want them driving new cars. I don't want them welching on paying a winner. And I don't want any freelancers staying in business. They give us a bad name. Tom, let's get that project moving right away. Everything else will fall in line as soon as you send out the word that the lid is off. There are some very tough boys up in Harlem. They got a taste of the big money. They won't go back to being runners or sub-bankers again. Sonny shrugged. Just give their names to Clemenza. That's his job. Straighten them out. It was Tessio who brought up the most important question. Once we start operating, the five families start their raids. They'll hit our bankers in Harlem and our bookmakers on the east side. They may even try to make things tough for the garment center outfits we service. This war is going to cost a lot of money. Maybe they won't. They know we'll hit them right back. I've got peace feelers out, and maybe we can settle everything by paying an indemnity for the Tatalia kid. We're getting the cold shoulder on those negotiations. They lost a lot of dough the last few months, and they blame us for it, with justice. I think what they want is for us to agree to come in on the narcotics trade, to use the family influence politically. In other words, Salazzo's deal minus Salazzo. But they won't broach that until they've hurt us with some sort of combat action. Then, after we've been softened up, they figure we'll listen to a proposition on narcotics. No deal on drugs. The Don said no, and it's no until he changes it. Then we're faced with a tactical problem. Our money is out in the open, bookmaking and policy. We can be hit. But the Tatalia family has prostitution and call girls in the dock unions. How the hell are we going to hit them? The other families are in some gambling, but most of them are in the construction trades, shylocking, controlling the unions, getting the government contracts. They get a lot from strong arm and other stuff that involves innocent people. Their money isn't out in the street. The Tatalia nightclub is too famous to touch. It would cause too much of a stink. And with the Don still out of action, their political influence matches ours. So we've got a real problem here. It's my problem, Tom. I'll find the answer. Keep the negotiation alive and follow through on the other stuff. 
Let's go back into business and see what happens. Then we'll take it from there. Clemenza and Tessio have plenty of soldiers. We can match the whole five families, gun for gun, if that's the way they want it. We'll just go to the mattresses. There was no problem getting the freelance Negro bankers out of business. The police were informed and cracked down, with a special effort. At that time, it was not possible for a Negro to make a payoff to a high police or a political official to keep such an operation going. This was due to racial prejudice and racial distrust more than anything else. But Harlem had always been considered a minor problem, and its settlement was expected. The five families struck in an unexpected direction. Two powerful officials in the garment unions were killed, officials who were members of the Corleone family. Then, the Corleone family Shylocks were barred from the waterfront piers, as were the Corleone family bookmakers. The Longshoremen's Union locals had gone over to the five families. Corleone bookmakers all over the city were threatened to persuade them to change their allegiance. The biggest numbers banker in Harlem, an old friend and ally of the Corleone family, was brutally murdered. There was no longer any option. Sonny told his capo regime to go to the mattresses. Two apartments were set up in the city and furnished with mattresses for the button men to sleep on, a refrigerator for food and guns and ammunition. Clemenza staffed one apartment and Tessio the other. All family bookmakers were given bodyguard teams. The policy bankers in Harlem, however, had gone over to the enemy, and at the moment nothing could be done about that. All this cost the Corleone family a great deal of money, and very little was coming in. As the next few months went by, other things became obvious. The most important was that the Corleone family had overmatched itself. There were reasons for this. With the Don still too weak to take apart, a great deal of the family's political strength was neutralized. Also, the last ten years of peace had seriously eroded the fighting qualities of the two capo regime, Clemenza and Tessio. Clemenza was still a competent executioner and administrator, but he no longer had the energy or the youthful strength to lead troops. Tessio had mellowed with age and was not ruthless enough. Tom Hagen, despite his abilities, was simply not suited to be a consigliere in a time of war. His main fault was that he was not a Sicilian. Sonny Corleone recognized these weaknesses in the family's wartime posture, but could not take any steps to remedy them. He was not the Don, and only the Don could replace the capo regime and the consigliere. And the very act of replacement would make the situation more dangerous, might precipitate some treachery. At first, Sonny had thought of fighting a holding action until the Don could become well enough to take charge. But with the defection of the policy bankers, the terrorization of the bookmakers, the family position was becoming precarious. He decided to strike back. But he decided to strike right at the heart of the enemy. He planned the execution of the heads of the five families in one grand tactical maneuver. To that purpose, he put into effect an elaborate system of surveillance of these leaders. But after a week, the enemy chiefs promptly dived underground and were seen no more in public. The five families and the Corleone Empire were in stalemate. Chapter 18 Amerigo Bonacera lived only a few blocks from his undertaking establishment on Mulberry Street, and so always went home for supper. Evenings he returned to his place of business, dutifully joining those mourners paying their respects to the dead who lay in state in his somber parlors. He always resented the jokes made about his profession, the macabre technical details, which were so unimportant. Of course, none of his friends or family or neighbors would make such jokes. Any profession was worthy of respect to men who for centuries earned bread by the sweat of their brows. Now, at supper with his wife in their solidly furnished apartment, gilt statues of the Virgin Mary with their red-glassed candles flickering on the sideboard, Bonacera lit a camel cigarette and took a relaxing glass of American whiskey. His wife brought steaming plates of soup to the table. The two of them were alone now, 
he had sent his daughter to live in Boston with her mother's sister, where she could forget her terrible experience and her injuries at the hands of the two ruffians Don Corleone had punished. As they ate their soup, his wife asked, Are you going back to work tonight? Amerigo Bonacera nodded. His wife respected his work, but did not understand it. She did not understand that the technical part of his profession was the least important. She thought, like most other people, that he was paid for his skill in making the dead look so lifelike in their coffins. And indeed, his skill in this was legendary. But even more important, even more necessary, was his physical presence at the wake. When the bereaved family came at night to receive their blood relatives and their friends beside the coffin of their loved one, they needed Amerigo Bonacera with them. For he was a strict chaperone to death. His face always grave, yet strong and comforting, his voice unwavering, yet muted to a low register, he commanded the mourning ritual. He could quiet grief that was too unseemly. He could rebuke unruly children whose parents had not the heart to chastise. Never cloying in the tender of his condolences, yet never was he offhand. Once a family used Amerigo Bonacera to speed a loved one on, they came back to him again and again, and he never, never deserted one of his clients on that terrible last night above ground. Usually, he allowed himself a little nap after supper, then he washed and shaved afresh, talcum powder generously used to shroud the heavy black beard, a mouthwash always. He respectfully changed into fresh linen, white gleaming shirt, the black tie, a freshly pressed dark suit, dull black shoes and black socks. And yet the effect was comforting instead of somber. He also kept his hair dyed black, an unheard of frivolity in an Italian male of his generation, but not out of vanity simply because his hair had turned a lively pepper and salt, a color which struck him as unseemly for his profession. After he finished his soup, his wife placed a small steak before him with a few forkfuls of green spinach, oozing yellow oil. He was a light eater. When he finished this, he drank a cup of coffee and smoked another camel cigarette. Over his coffee, he thought about his poor daughter. She would never be the same. Her outward beauty had been restored, but there was a look of a frightened animal in her eyes that had made him unable to bear the sight of her and so they had sent her to live in Boston for a time. Time would heal her wounds. Pain and terror was not so final as death, as he well knew. His work made him an optimist. He had just finished the coffee when his phone in the living room rang. His wife never answered it when he was home, so he got up and drained his cup and stubbed out his cigarette. As he walked to the phone, he pulled off his tie and started to unbutton his shirt, getting ready for his little nap. Then he picked up the phone and said with quiet courtesy, Hello? The voice on the other end was harsh, strained. This is Tom Hagen. I'm calling for Don Corleone at his request. Amerigo Bonacera felt the coffee churning sourly in his stomach, felt himself going a little sick. It was more than a year since he had put himself in the debt of the Don to avenge his daughter's honor, and in that time the knowledge that he must pay that debt had receded. He had been so grateful seeing the bloody faces of those two ruffians that he would have done anything for the Don. But time erodes gratitude more quickly than it does beauty. Now, Bonacera felt the sickness of a man faced with disaster. Yes, I understand. I'm listening. He was surprised at the coldness in Hagen's voice. The consigliere had always been a courteous man, though not Italian. But now, he was being rudely brusque. You owe the Don a service. He has no doubt that you will repay him, that you will be happy to have this opportunity. In one hour, not before, perhaps later, he will be at your funeral parlor to ask for your help. Be there to greet him. Don't have any people who work for you there. Send them home. If you have any objections to this, speak now and I'll inform Don Corleone. He has other friends who can do him this service. Amerigo Bonacera almost cried out in his fright. 
How can you think I would refuse the Godfather? Of course I'll do anything he wishes. I haven't forgotten my debt. I'll go to my business immediately, at once. Hagen's voice was gentler now, but there was something strange about it. Thank you. The Don never doubted you. The question was mine. Oblige him tonight and you can always come to me in any trouble. You'll earn my personal friendship. This frightened Amerigo Bonacera even more. The Don himself is coming to me tonight? Yes. Then he's completely recovered from his injuries, thank God. His voice made it a question. There was a pause at the other end of the phone. Then Hagen's voice said very quietly, Yes. There was a click, and the phone went dead. Bonacera was sweating. He went into the bedroom and changed his shirt and rinsed his mouth, but he didn't shave or use a fresh tie. He put on the same one he had used during the day. He called the funeral parlor and told his assistant to stay with the bereaved family using the front parlor that night. He himself would be busy in the laboratory working area of the building. When the assistant started asking questions, Bonacera cut him off very curtly and told him to follow orders exactly. He put on his suit jacket and his wife, still eating, looked up at him in surprise. I have work to do. She did not dare question him because of the look on his face. Bonacera went out of the house and walked the few blocks to his funeral parlor. This building stood by itself on a large lot with a white picket fence running all around it. There was a narrow roadway leading from the street to the rear, just wide enough for ambulances and hearses. Bonacera unlocked the gate and left it open. Then he walked to the rear of the building and entered it through the wide door there. As he did so, he could see mourners already entering the front door of the funeral parlor to pay their respects to the current corpse. Many years ago, when Bonacera had bought this building from an undertaker planning to retire, there had been a stoop of about ten steps that mourners had to mount before entering the funeral parlor. This had posed a problem. Old and crippled mourners determined to pay their respects had found the steps almost impossible to mount. So the former undertaker had used the freight elevator for these people, a small metal platform that rose out of the ground beside the building. The elevator was for coffins and bodies. It would descend underground, then rise into the funeral parlor itself, so that a crippled mourner would find himself rising through the floor beside the coffin as other mourners moved their black chairs aside to let the elevator rise through the trap door. Then, when the crippled or aged mourner had finished paying his respects, the elevator would again come up through the polished floor to take him down and out again. Amerigo Bonacera had found this solution to the problem unseemly and penny-pinching. So, he had had the front of the building remodeled, the stoop done away with, and a slightly inclining walk put in its place. But of course, the elevator was still used for coffins and corpses. In the rear of the building, cut off from the funeral parlor and reception rooms by a massive soundproof door, was the business office, the embalming room, a storeroom for coffins, and a carefully locked closet holding chemicals and the awful tools of his trade. Bonacera went to the office, sat at his desk, and lit up a camel, one of the few times he had ever smoked in this building. Then he waited for Don Corleone. He waited with a feeling of the utmost despair, for he had no doubt as to what services he would be called upon to perform. For the last year, the Corleone family had waged war against the five great mafia families of New York, and the carnage had filled the newspapers. Many men on both sides had been killed. Now the Corleone family had killed somebody so important that they wished to hide his body, make it disappear, and what better way than to have it officially buried by a registered undertaker. And Amerigo Bonacera had no illusions about the act he was to commit. He would be an accessory to murder. If it came out, he would spend years in jail. His daughter and wife would be disgraced. His good name, the respected name of Amerigo Bonacera, dragged through the bloody mud of the Mafia War. He indulged himself by smoking another camel. And then he thought of something even more terrifying. 
When the other Mafia families found out that he had aided the Corleones, they would treat him as an enemy, they would murder him, and now he cursed the day he had gone to the Godfather and begged for his vengeance. He cursed the day his wife and the wife of Don Corleone had become friends. He cursed his daughter and America and his own success. And then his optimism returned. It could all go well. Don Corleone was a clever man. Certainly everything had been arranged to keep the secret. He had only to keep his nerve. For, of course, the one thing more fatal than any other was to earn the Don's displeasure. He heard tires on gravel. His practiced ear told him a car was coming through the narrow driveway and parking in the backyard. He opened the rear door to let them in. The huge, fat man, Clemenza, entered, followed by two very rough-looking young fellows. They searched the rooms without saying a word to Bonacera. Then Clemenza went out. The two young men remained with the undertaker. A few moments later, Bonacera recognized the sound of a heavy ambulance coming through the narrow driveway. Then Clemenza appeared in the doorway, followed by two men carrying a stretcher and Amerigo Bonacera's worst fears were realized. On the stretcher was a corpse, swaddled in a gray blanket, but with bare yellow feet sticking out the end. Clemenza motioned the stretcher-bearers into the embalming room, and then, from the blackness of the yard, another man stepped into the lighted office room. It was Don Corleone. The Don had lost weight during his illness and moved with a curious stiffness. He was holding his hat in his hands, and his hair seemed thin over his massive skull. He looked older, more shrunken than when Bonacera had seen him at the wedding, but he still radiated power. Holding his hat against his chest, he said to Bonacera, Well, old friend, are you ready to do me this service? Bonacera nodded. The Don followed the stretcher into the embalming room, and Bonacera trailed after him. The corpse was on one of the guttered tables. Don Corleone made a tiny gesture with his hat, and the other men left the room. Bonacera whispered, What do you wish me to do? Don Corleone was staring at the table. I want you to use all your powers, all your skill as you love me. I do not wish his mother to see him as he is. He went to the table and drew down the gray blanket. Amerigo Bonacera, against all his will, against all his years of training and experience, let out a gasp of horror. On the embalming table was the bullet-smashed face of Sonny Corleone. The left eye, drowned in blood, had a star fracture in its lens. The bridge of his nose and left cheekbone were hammered into pulp. For one fraction of a second, the Don put out his hand to support himself against Bonacera's body. See how they have massacred my son. Chapter 19 Perhaps it was the stalemate that made Sonny Corleone embark on the bloody course of attrition that ended in his own death. Perhaps it was his dark, violent nature given full reign. In any case, that spring and summer, he mounted senseless raids on enemy auxiliaries. Tatalia family pimps were shot to death in Harlem. Dock goons were massacred. Union officials who owed allegiance to the five families were warned to stay neutral. And when the Corleone bookmakers and Shylocks were still barred from the docks, Sonny sent Clemenza and his regime to wreak havoc upon the longshore. This slaughter was senseless because it could not affect the outcome of the war. Sonny was a brilliant tactician and won his brilliant victories. But what was needed was the strategical genius of Don Corleone. The whole thing degenerated into such a deadly guerrilla war that both sides found themselves losing a great deal of revenue and lives to no purpose. The Corleone family was finally forced to close down some of its most profitable bookmaking stations, including the book given to son-in-law Carlo Rizzi for his living. Carlo took to drink and running with chorus girls and giving his wife Connie a hard time. Since his beating at the hands of Sonny, he had not dared to hit his wife again. 
but he had not slept with her. Connie had thrown herself at his feet, and he had spurned her, as he thought, like a Roman with exquisite patrician pleasure. He had sneered at her, Go call your brother and tell him I won't screw you. Maybe you'll beat me up until I get a hard-on. But he was in deadly fear of Sonny, though they treated each other with cold politeness. Carlo had the sense to realize that Sonny would kill him, that Sonny was a man who could, with the naturalness of an animal, kill another man, while he himself would have to call up all his courage, all his will to commit murder. It never occurred to Carlo that because of this he was a better man than Sonny Corleone, if such terms could be used. He envied Sonny his awesome savagery, a savagery which was now becoming a legend. Tom Hagen, as the consigliere, disapproved of Sonny's tactics and yet decided not to protest to the Don simply because the tactics, to some extent, worked. The five families seemed to be cowed finally as the attrition went on and their counterblows weakened and finally ceased altogether. Hagen at first distrusted this seeming pacification of the enemy, but Sonny was jubilant. I'll pour it on, and then those bastards will come begging for a deal. Sonny was worried about other things. His wife was giving him a hard time because the rumors had gotten to her that Lucy Mancini had bewitched her husband. And though she joked publicly about her Sonny's equipment and technique, he had stayed away from her too long, and she missed him in her bed, and she was making life miserable for him with her nagging. In addition to this, Sonny was under the enormous strain of being a marked man. He had to be extraordinarily careful in all his movements, and he knew that his visits to Lucy Mancini had been charted by the enemy. But here... He took elaborate precautions, since this was the traditional vulnerable spot. He was safe there. Though Lucy had not the slightest suspicion, she was watched 24 hours a day by men of the Santino regime, and when an apartment became vacant on her floor, it was immediately rented by one of the most reliable men of that regime. The Don was recovering and would soon be able to resume command. At that time, the tide of battle must swing to the Corleone family. This Sonny was sure of. Meanwhile, he would guard his family's empire, earn the respect of his father, and, since the position was not hereditary to an absolute degree, cement his claim as heir to the Corleone Empire. But the enemy was making its plans. They, too, had analyzed the situation and had come to the conclusion that the only way to stave off complete defeat was to kill Sonny Corleone. They understood the situation better now and felt it was possible to negotiate with the Don, known for his logical reasonableness. They had come to hate Sonny for his bloodthirstiness, which they considered barbaric. Also, not good business sense. Nobody wanted the old days back again with all its turmoil and trouble. One evening, Connie Corleone received an anonymous phone call, a girl's voice, asking for Carlo. Who is this? The girl on the other end giggled. I'm a friend of Carlo's. I just wanted to tell him I can't see him tonight. I have to go out of town. You lousy bitch! You lousy tramp, bitch! There was a click on the other end. Carlo had gone to the track for that afternoon, and when he came home in the late evening, he was sore at losing and half drunk from the bottle he always carried. As soon as he stepped into the door, Connie started screaming curses at him. He ignored her and went in to take a shower. When he came out, he dried his naked body in front of her and started dolling up to go out. Connie stood with hands on hips, her face pointy and white with rage. You're not going any place. Your girlfriend called and said she can't make it tonight. You lousy bastard. You have the nerve to give your horse my phone number. I'll kill you, you bastard. She rushed at him, kicking and scratching. He held her off with one muscular forearm. You're crazy. But she could see he was worried, as if he knew the crazy girl he was screwing would actually pull such a stunt. She was kidding around, some nut. 
Connie ducked around his arm and clawed at his face. She got a little bit of his cheek under her fingernails. With surprising patience, he pushed her away. She noticed he was careful because of her pregnancy, and that gave her the courage to feed her rage. She was also excited. Pretty soon, she wouldn't be able to do anything. The doctor had said no sex for the last two months, and she wanted it before the last two months started. Yet her wish to inflict a physical injury on Carlo was very real, too. She followed him into the bedroom. She could see he was scared, and that filled her with contemptuous delight. You're staying home. You're not going out. Okay, okay. He was still undressed, only wearing his shorts. He liked to go around the house like that. He was proud of his V-shaped body, the golden skin. Connie looked at him hungrily. He tried to laugh. <laughs> you gonna give me something to eat at least? That mollified her, his calling on her duties, one of them at least. She was a good cook. She'd learned that from her mother. She sautéed veal and peppers, preparing a mixed salad while the pan simmered. Meanwhile, Carlo stretched out on his bed to read the next day's racing form. He had a water glass full of whiskey beside him, which he kept sipping at. Connie came into the bedroom. She stood in the doorway as if she could not come close to the bed without being invited. Food is on the table. Still reading the racing form, he said, I'm not hungry yet. It's on the table. Stick it up your ass. He drank off the rest of the whiskey in the water glass, tilted the bottle to fill it again. He paid no more attention to her. Connie went into the kitchen, picked up the plates filled with food, and smashed them against the sink. The loud crashes brought Carlo in from the bedroom. He looked at the greasy veal and peppers splattered all over the kitchen walls, and his finicky neatness was outraged. You filthy guinea spoiled brat. Clean that up right now or I'll kick the shit out of you. Like hell I will. She held her hands like claws, ready to scratch his bare chest to ribbons. Carlo went back into the bedroom, and when he came out he was holding his belt doubled in his hand. Clean it up. There was no mistaking the menace in his voice. She stood there, not moving, and he swung the belt against her heavily padded hips, the leather stinging, but not really hurting. Connie retreated to the kitchen cabinets, and her hand went into one of the drawers to haul out the long bread knife. She held it ready. Even the female Corleones are murderers. He put the belt down on the kitchen table and advanced toward her. She tried a sudden lunge, but her pregnant, heavy body made her slow, and he eluded the thrust she aimed at his groin in such deadly earnest. He disarmed her easily, and then he started to slap her face with a slow, medium-heavy stroke so as not to break the skin. He hit her again and again as she retreated around the kitchen table trying to escape him, and he pursued her into the bedroom. She tried to bite his hand, and he grabbed her by the hair to lift her head up. He slapped her face until she began to weep like a little girl with pain and humiliation. Then he threw her contemptuously onto the bed. He drank from the bottle of whiskey still on the night table. He seemed very drunk now. His light blue eyes had a crazy glint in them. And finally, Connie was truly afraid. Carlos straddled his legs apart and drank from the bottle. He reached down and grabbed a chunk of her pregnant heavy thigh in his hand. He squeezed very hard, hurting her and making her beg for mercy. You're fat as a pig. With disgust, he walked out of the bedroom. Thoroughly frightened and cowed, she lay in the bed, not daring to see what her husband was doing in the other room. Finally, she rose and went to the door to peer into the living room. Carlo had opened a fresh bottle of whiskey and was sprawled on the sofa. In a little while, he would drink himself into sodden sleep, and she could sneak into the kitchen and call her family in Long Beach. She would tell her mother to send someone out here to get her. She just hoped Sonny didn't answer the phone. She knew it would be best to talk to Tom Hagen or her mother. It was nearly 10 o'clock at night when the kitchen phone in Don Corleone's house rang. It was answered by one of the Don's bodyguards, who dutifully turned the phone over to Connie's mother. But Mrs. Corleone could hardly understand what her daughter was saying. 
The girl was hysterical, yet tried to whisper so that her husband in the next room would not hear her. Also, her face had become swollen because of the slaps, and her puffy lips thickened her speech. Mrs. Corleone made a sign to the bodyguard that he should call Sonny, who was in the living room with Tom Hagen. Sonny came into the kitchen and took the phone from his mother. Yeah, Connie. Connie was so frightened, both of her husband and of what her brother would do, that her speech became worse. She babbled, Sonny, just send a car to bring me home. I'll tell you then. It's nothing, Sonny. Don't you come. Send Tom. Please, Sonny. It's nothing. I just want to come home. By this time, Hagen had come into the room. The Don was already under a sedated sleep in the bedroom above, and Hagen wanted to keep an eye on Sonny in all crises. The two interior bodyguards were also in the kitchen. Everybody was watching Sonny as he listened on the phone. There was no question that the violence in Sonny Corleone's nature rose from some deep, mysterious, physical well. As they watched, they could actually see the blood rushing to his heavily corded neck, could see the eyes film with hatred, the separate features of his face tightening, growing pinched. Then his face took on the grayish hue of a sick man fighting off some sort of death, except that the adrenaline pumping through his body made his hands tremble. But his voice was controlled, pitched low, as he told his sister, You wait there, you just wait there. He hung up the phone. He stood there a moment, quite stunned with his own rage. Then he said, The fucking son of a bitch, the fucking son of a bitch. He ran out of the house. Hagen knew the look on Sonny's face. All reasoning power had left him. At this moment, Sonny was capable of anything. Hagen also knew that the ride into the city would cool Sonny off, make him more rational. But that rationality might make him even more dangerous, though the rationality would enable him to protect himself against the consequences of his rage. Hagen heard the car motor roaring into life, and he said to the two bodyguards, Go after him. Then he went to the phone and made some calls. He arranged for some men of Sonny's regime living in the city to go up to Carlo Rizzi's apartment and get Carlo out of there. Other men would stay with Connie until Sonny arrived. He was taking a chance, thwarting Sonny, but he knew that Don would back him up. He was afraid that Sonny might kill Carlo in front of witnesses. He did not expect trouble from the enemy. The five families had been quiet too long and obviously were looking for peace of some kind. By the time Sonny roared out of the mall in his Buick, he had already regained, partly, his senses. He noted the two bodyguards getting into a car to follow him and approved. He expected no danger. The five families had quit counterattacking, were not really fighting anymore. He had grabbed his jacket in the foyer, and there was a gun in a secret dashboard compartment of the car. The car registered in the name of a member of his regime, so that he, personally, could not get into any legal trouble. But he did not anticipate needing any weapon. He did not even know what he was going to do with Carlo Rizzi. Now that he had a chance to think, Sonny knew he could not kill the father of an unborn child, and that father his sister's husband, not over a domestic spat, except that it was not just a domestic spat, Carlo was a bad guy, and Sonny felt responsible that his sister had met the bastard through him. The paradox in Sonny's violent nature was that he could not hit a woman, and had never done so, that he could not harm a child or anything helpless. When Carlo had refused to fight back against him that day, it had kept Sonny from killing him. Complete submission disarmed his violence. As a boy, he had been truly tender-hearted. That he had become a murderer as a man was simply his destiny. But he would settle this thing once and for all, Sonny thought, as he headed the Buick toward the causeway that would take him over the water from Long Beach to the parkways on the other side of Jones Beach. He always used this route when he went to New York. There was less traffic. He decided he would send Connie home with the bodyguards 
and then he would have a session with his brother-in-law. What would happen after that, he didn't know. If the bastard had really hurt Connie, he'd make a cripple out of the bastard. But the wind coming over the causeway, the salty freshness of the air, cooled his anger. He put the window down all the way. He had taken the Jones Beach causeway, as always, because it was usually deserted this time of night, at this time of year, and he could speed recklessly until he hit the parkways on the other side, and even there traffic would be light. The release of driving very fast would help dissipate what he knew was a dangerous tension. He had already left his bodyguard's car far behind. The causeway was badly lit. There was not a single car. Far ahead, he saw the white cone of the manned toll booth. There were other toll booths beside it, but they were staffed only during the day, for heavier traffic. Sonny started breaking the Buick, and at the same time searched his pockets for change. He had none. He reached for his wallet, flipped it open with one hand, and fingered out a bill. He came within the arcade of light, and he saw, to his mild surprise, a car in the toll booth slot blocking it, the driver obviously asking some sort of directions from the toll taker. Sonny honked his horn, and the other car obediently rolled through to let his car slide into the slot. Sonny handed the toll taker the dollar bill and waited for his change. He was in a hurry now to close the window. The Atlantic Ocean air had chilled the whole car. But the toll taker was fumbling with his change. The dumb son of a bitch actually dropped it. Head and body disappeared as the toll man stooped down in his booth to pick up the money. At that moment, Sonny noticed that the other car had not kept going, but had parked a few feet ahead, still blocking his way. At that same moment, his lateral vision caught sight of another man in the darkened toll booth to his right. But he did not have time to think about that, because two men came out of the car parked in front and walked toward him. The toll collector still had not appeared. And then, in the fraction of a second before anything actually happened, Santino Corleone knew he was a dead man. And in that moment, his mind was lucid, drained of all violence, as if the hidden fear, finally real and present, had purified him. Even so, his huge body, in a reflex for life, crashed against the Buick door, bursting its lock. The man in the darkened toll booth opened fire, and the shots caught Sonny Corleone in the head and neck as his massive frame spilled out of the car. The two men in front held up their guns now. The man in the darkened toll booth cut his fire, and Sonny's body sprawled on the asphalt with the legs still partly inside. The two men each fired shots into Sonny's body, then kicked him in the face to disfigure his features even more, to show a mark made by a more personal human power. Seconds afterward, all four men, the three actual assassins and the bogus toll collector, were in their car and speeding toward the Meadowbrook Parkway on the other side of Jones Beach. Their pursuit was blocked by Sonny's car and body in the tollgate slot, but when Sonny's bodyguards pulled up a few minutes later and saw his body lying there, they had no intention to pursue. They swung their car around in a huge arc and returned to Long Beach. At the first public phone off the causeway, one of them hopped out and called Tom Hagen. He was very curt and very brisk. Sonny's dead. They got him at the Jones Beach toll. Hagen's voice was perfectly calm. Okay, go to Clemenza's house and tell him to come here right away. He'll tell you what to do. Hagen had taken the call in the kitchen with Mama Corleone bustling around preparing a snack for the arrival of her daughter. He had kept his composure and the old woman had not noticed anything amiss. Not that she could not have if she wanted to, but in her life with the Don, she had learned it was far wiser not to perceive, that if it was necessary to know something painful, it would be told to her soon enough. And if it was a pain that could be spared her, she could do without. She was quite content not to share the pain of her men. After all, did they share the pain of women? Impassively, she boiled her coffee and set the table with food. 
In her experience, pain and fear did not dull physical hunger. In her experience, the taking of food dulled pain. She would have been outraged if a doctor had tried to sedate her with a drug, but coffee and a crust of bread were another matter. She came, of course, from a more primitive culture. And so, she let Tom Hagen escape to his corner conference room, and once in that room, Hagen began to tremble so violently he had to sit down with his legs squeezed together, his head hunched into his contracted shoulders, hands clasped together between his knees, as if he were praying to the devil. He was, he knew now, no fit consigliere for a family at war. He had been fooled, faked out by the five families and their seeming timidity. They had remained quiet, laying their terrible ambush. They had planned and waited, holding their bloody hands no matter what provocation they had been given. They had waited to land one terrible blow, and they had. Old Genko Abandando would never have fallen for it. He would have smelled a rat. He would have smoked them out, tripled his precautions. And through all this, Hagen felt his grief. Sonny had been his true brother, his savior, his hero, when they had been boys together. Sonny had never been mean or bullying with him, had always treated him with affection, had taken him in his arms when Salazzo had turned him loose. Sonny's joy at that reunion had been real. That he had grown up to be a cruel and violent and bloody man was, for Hagen, not relevant. He had walked out of the kitchen because he knew he could never tell Mama Corleone about her son's death. He had never thought of her as his mother as he thought of the Don as his father and Sonny as his brother. His affection for her was like his affection for Freddie and Michael and Connie. The affection for someone who has been kind but not loving. But he could not tell her. In a few short months, she had lost all her sons, Freddie exiled to Nevada, Michael hiding for his life in Sicily, and now Santino dead. Which of the three had she loved most of all? She'd never shown. It was no more than a few minutes. Hagen got control of himself again and picked up the phone. He called Connie's number. It rang for a long time before Connie answered in a whisper. Hagen spoke to her gently. Connie, this is Tom. Wake your husband up. I have to talk to him. Tom, is Sonny coming here? No, Sonny's not coming there. Don't worry about that. Just wake Carlo up and tell him it's very important I speak to him. Tommy beat me up. I'm afraid he'll hurt me again if he knows I called home. He won't. He'll talk to me and I'll straighten him out. Everything will be okay. Tell him it's very important, very, very important he come to the phone, okay? It was almost five minutes before Carlo's voice came over the phone, a voice half slurred by whiskey and sleep. Hagen spoke sharply to make him alert. Listen, Carlo, I'm going to tell you something very shocking. Now prepare yourself, because when I tell it to you, I want you to answer me very casually, as if it's less than it is. I told Connie it was important, so you have to give her a story. Tell her the family has decided to move you both to one of the houses in the mall and to give you a big job. That the Don has finally decided to give you a chance in the hope of making your home life better. You got that? There was a hopeful note in Carlo's voice as he answered. Yeah, okay. In a few minutes, a couple of my men are going to knock on your door to take you away with them. Tell them I want them to call me first. Just tell them that. Don't say anything else. I'll instruct them to leave you there with Connie, okay? Yeah, yeah, I got it. His voice was excited. The tension in Hagen's voice seemed to have finally alerted him that the news coming up was going to be really important. Hagen gave it to him straight. They killed Sonny tonight. Don't say anything. Connie called him while you were asleep and he was on his way over there. But I don't want her to know that. Even if she guesses it, I don't want her to know it for sure. She'll start thinking it's all her fault. Now, I want you to stay with her tonight and not tell her anything. I want you to make up with her. I want you to be the perfect, loving husband. And I want you to stay that way until she has her baby at least. 
Tomorrow morning somebody, maybe you, maybe the Don, maybe her mother, will tell Connie that her brother got killed. And I want you by her side. Do me this favor, and I'll take care of you in the times to come. You got that? Sure, Tom, sure. Listen, me and you always got along. I'm grateful, understand? Yeah. Nobody will blame your fight with Connie for causing this. Don't worry about that. I'll take care of that. He paused, and softly, encouragingly, Go ahead now. Take care of Connie. He broke the connection. He had learned never to make a threat. The Don had taught him that. But Carlo had gotten the message all right. He was a hair away from death. Hagen made another call to Tessio, telling him to come to the mall in Long Beach immediately. He didn't say why, and Tessio did not ask. Hagen sighed. Now would come the part he dreaded. He would have to waken the Don from his drugged slumber. He would have to tell the man he most loved in the world that he had failed him, that he had failed to guard his domain and the life of his eldest son. He would have to tell the Don everything was lost unless the sick man himself could enter the battle. For Hagen did not delude himself. Only the great Don himself could snatch even a stalemate from this terrible defeat. Hagen didn't even bother checking with Don Corleone's doctors. It would be to no purpose. No matter what the doctors ordered, even if they told him that the Don could not rise from his sickbed on pain of death, he must tell his adopted father and then follow him. And, of course, there was no question about what the Don would do. The opinions of medical men were irrelevant now. Everything was irrelevant now. The Don must be told, and he must either take command or order Hagen to surrender the Corleone power to the five families. And yet, with all his heart, Hagen dreaded the next hour. He tried to prepare his own manner. He would have to be in all ways strict with his own guilt. To reproach himself would only add to the Don's burden. To show his own grief would only sharpen the grief of the Don. To point out his own shortcomings as a wartime consigliere would only make the Don reproach himself for his own bad judgment for picking such a man for such an important post. He must, Hagen knew, tell the news, present his analysis of what must be done to rectify the situation, and then keep silent. His reactions thereafter must be the reactions invited by his Don. If the Don wanted him to show guilt, he would show guilt. If the Don invited grief, he would lay bare his genuine sorrow. Hagen lifted his head at the sound of motors, cars rolling up onto the mall. The Capo Regime were arriving. He would brief them first, and then he would go up and wake Don Corleone. He got up and went to the liquor cabinet by the desk and took out a glass and bottle. He stood there for a moment so unnerved he could not pour the liquid from bottle to glass. Behind him, he heard the door to the room close softly, and turning, he saw, fully dressed for the first time since he had been shot, Don Corleone. The Don walked across the room to his huge leather armchair and sat down. He walked a little stiffly. His clothes hung a little loosely on his frame. But to Hagen's eyes, he looked the same as always. It was almost as if by his will alone the Don had discarded all external evidence of his still weakened frame. His face was sternly set with all its old force and strength. He sat straight in the armchair, and he said to Hagen, Give me a drop of anisette. Hagen switched bottles and poured them both a portion of the fiery, licorice-tasting alcohol. It was peasant, homemade stuff, much stronger than that sold in stores, the gift of an old friend who every year presented the Don with a small truckload. My wife was weeping before she fell asleep. Outside my window I saw my capo regime coming to the house, and it is midnight. So, consigliere of mine, I think you should tell your Don what everyone knows. I didn't tell Mama anything. 
I was about to come up and wake you and tell you the news myself. In another moment, I would have come to waken you. But you needed a drink first. Yes. You had your drink. You can tell me now. There was just the faintest hint of reproach for Hagen's weakness. They shot Sonny on the causeway. He's dead. Don Corleone blinked. For just the fraction of a second, the wall of his will disintegrated and the draining of his physical strength was plain on his face. Then he recovered. He clasped his hands in front of him on top of the desk and looked directly into Hagen's eyes. Tell me everything that happened. He held up one of his hands. No. Wait until Clemence and Tessio arrive so you won't have to tell it all again. It was only a few moments later that the two Kappa regime were escorted into the room by a bodyguard. They saw at once that the Don knew about his son's death because the Don stood up to receive them. They embraced him as old comrades were permitted to do. They all had a drink of anisette, which Hagen poured them before he told them the story that night. Don Corleone asked only one question at the end. Is it certain my son is dead? Clemenza answered. Yes. The bodyguards were of Santino's regime, but picked by me. I questioned him when I came to my house. They saw his body in the light of the toll house. He could not live with the wounds they saw. They placed their lives in forfeit for what they say. Don Corleone accepted this final verdict without any sign of emotion, except for a few moments of silence. Then he said, None of you are to concern yourselves with this affair. None of you are to commit any acts of vengeance. None of you are to make any inquiries to track down the murderers of my son without my express command. There will be no further acts of war against the five families without my express and personal wish. Our family will cease all business operations and cease to protect any of our business operations until after my son's funeral. Then we will meet here again and decide what must be done. Tonight, we must do what we can for Santino. We must bury him as a Christian. I will have friends of mine arrange things with the police and all other proper authorities. Clemenza, you will remain with me at all times as my bodyguard, you and the men of your regime. Tessio, you will guard all other members of my family. Tom, I want you to call Amerigo Bonacera and tell him I will need his services at some time during this night. Wait for me at his establishment. It may be an hour, two hours, three hours. Do you all understand that? The three men nodded. Clemenza, get some men in cars and wait for me. I will be ready in a few minutes. Tom, you did well. In the morning, I went Constanzia with her mother. Make arrangements for her and her husband to live in the mall. Have Sandra's friends, the women, go to her house to stay with her. My wife will go there also when I have spoken with her. My wife will tell her the misfortune, and the women will arrange for the church to say their masses and prayers for his soul. The Don got up from his leather armchair. The other men rose with him, and Clemenza and Tessio embraced him again. Hagen held the door open for the Don, who paused to look at him for a moment. Then the Don put his hand on Hagen's cheek, embraced him quickly, and said in Italian, You've been a good son. You comfort me telling Hagen that he had acted properly in this terrible time. The Don went up to his bedroom to speak to his wife. It was then that Hagen made the call to Amerigo Bonacera for the undertaker to redeem the favor he owed to the Corleones. Book 5, Chapter 20 The death of Santino Corleone sent shockwaves through the underworld of the nation. 
And when it became known that Don Corleone had risen from his sickbed to take charge of the family affairs, when spies at the funeral reported that the Don seemed to be fully recovered, the heads of the five families made frantic efforts to prepare a defense against the bloody retaliatory war that was sure to follow. Nobody made the mistake of assuming that Don Corleone could be held cheaply because of his past misfortunes. He was a man who had made only a few mistakes in his career and had learned from every one of them. Only Hagen guessed the Don's real intentions and was not surprised when emissaries were sent to the five families to propose a peace. Not only to propose a peace, but a meeting of all the families in the city and with invitations to families all over the United States to attend. Since the New York families were the most powerful in the country, it was understood that their welfare affected the welfare of the country as a whole. At first, there were suspicions. Was Don Corleone preparing a trap? Was he trying to throw his enemies off their guard? Was he attempting to prepare a wholesale massacre to avenge his son? But Don Corleone soon made it clear he was sincere. Not only did he involve all the families in the country in this meeting, but made no move to put his own people on a war footing or to enlist allies. And then he took the final irrevocable step that established the authenticity of these intentions and assured the safety of the Grand Council to be assembled. He called on the services of the Bocchicchio family. The Bocchicchio family was unique in that once a particularly ferocious branch of the Mafia in Sicily, it had become an instrument of peace in America. Once a group of men who earned their living by a savage determination, they now earned their living in what perhaps could be called a saintly fashion. The Bocchicchio's one asset was a closely knit structure of blood relationships, a family loyalty, severe even for a society where family loyalty came before loyalty to a wife. The Bocchicchio family, extending out to third cousins, had once numbered nearly 200 when they ruled the particular economy of a small section of southern Sicily. The income for the entire family then came from four or five flour mills, by no means owned communally, but assuring labor and bread and a minimal security for all family members. This was enough, with intermarriages, for them to present a common front against their enemies. No competing mill, no dam that would create a water supply to their competitors or ruin their own selling of water was allowed to be built in their corner of Sicily. A powerful landowning baron once tried to erect his own mill strictly for his personal use. The mill was burned down. He called on the Carabinieri and higher authorities, who arrested three of the Bocchicchio family. Even before the trial, the manor house of the baron was torched. The indictment and accusations were withdrawn. A few months later, one of the highest functionaries in the Italian government arrived in Sicily and tried to solve the chronic water shortage of that island by proposing a huge dam. Engineers arrived from Rome to do surveys while watched by grim natives, members of the Bocchicchio clan. Police flooded the area, housed in a specially built barracks. It looked like nothing could stop the dam from being built, and supplies and equipment had actually been unloaded in Palermo. That was as far as they got. The Bocchicchios had contacted fellow mafia chiefs and extracted agreements for their aid. The heavy equipment was sabotaged, the lighter equipment stolen. Mafia deputies in the Italian parliament launched a bureaucratic counterattack against the planners. This went on for several years, and in that time, Mussolini came to power. The dictator decreed that the dam must be built. It was not. The dictator had known that the mafia would be a threat to his regime, forming what amounted to a separate authority from his own. He gave full powers to a high police official who promptly solved the problem by throwing everybody into jail or deporting them to penal work islands. In a few short years, he had broken the power of the mafia simply by arbitrarily arresting anyone even suspected of being a mafioso, and so also brought ruin to a great many innocent families. 
The Bokikios had been rash enough to resort to force against this unlimited power. Half of the men were killed in armed combat, the other half deported to penal island colonies. There were only a handful left when arrangements were made for them to emigrate to America via the clandestine underground route of jumping ship through Canada. There were almost 20 immigrants, and they settled in a small town not far from New York City in the Hudson Valley, where, by starting at the very bottom, they worked their way up to owning a garbage-hauling firm and their own trucks. They became prosperous because they had no competition. They had no competition because competitors found their trucks burned and sabotaged. One persistent fellow who undercut prices was found buried in the garbage he had picked up during the day, smothered to death. But as the men married to Sicilian girls, needless to say, children came, and the garbage business, though providing a living, was not really enough to pay for the finer things America had to offer. And so, as a diversification, the Bocchicchio family became negotiators and hostages in the peace efforts of warring mafia families. A strain of stupidity ran through the Bocchicchio clan, or perhaps they were just primitive. In any case, they recognized their limitations and knew they could not compete with other mafia families in the struggle to organize and control more sophisticated business structures like prostitution, gambling, dope, and public fraud. They were straight-from-the-shoulder people who could offer a gift to an ordinary patrolman but did not know how to approach a political bagman. They had only two assets, their honor and their ferocity. And Bocchicchio never lied, never committed an act of treachery. Such behavior was too complicated. Also, a Bokikio never forgot an injury and never left it unavenged, no matter what the cost. And so, by accident, they stumbled into what would prove to be their most lucrative profession. When warring families wanted to make peace and arrange a parley, the Bokikio clan was contacted. The head of the clan would handle the initial negotiations and arrange for the necessary hostages. For instance, when Michael had gone to meet Salazzo, a Bokikio had been left with the Corleone family as surety for Michael's safety, the service paid for by Salazzo. If Michael were killed by Salazzo, then the Bocchicchio male hostage held by the Corleone family would be killed by the Corleones. In this case, the Bocchicchios would take their vengeance on Salazzo as the cause of their clansmen's death. Since the Bocchicchios were so primitive, they never let anything, any kind of punishment, stand in their way of vengeance. They would give up their own lives, and there was no protection against them if they were betrayed. A Bocchicchio hostage was guilt-edged insurance. And so now when Don Corleone employed the Bocchicchios as negotiators and arranged for them to supply hostages for all the families to come to the peace meeting, there could be no question as to his sincerity. There could be no question of treachery. The meeting would be safe as a wedding. Hostages given, the meeting took place in the director's conference room of a small commercial bank whose president was indebted to Don Corleone, and indeed some of whose stock belonged to Don Corleone, though it was in the president's name. The president always treasured that moment when he had offered to give Don Corleone a written document proving his ownership of the shares to preclude any treachery. Don Corleone had been horrified. He told the president, I would trust you with my whole fortune. I would trust you with my life and the welfare of my children. It is inconceivable to me that you would ever trick me or otherwise betray me. My whole world, all my faith in my judgment of human character would collapse. Of course... I have my own written record so that if something should happen to me, my heirs would know that you hold something in trust for them. But I know that even if I were not here in this world to guard the interests of my children, you would be faithful to their needs. The president of the bank, though not Sicilian, was a man of tender sensibilities. He understood the Don perfectly. Now, the godfather's request was the president's command, 
And so, on a Saturday afternoon, the executive suite of the bank, the conference room with its deep leather chairs, its absolute privacy, was made available to the families. Security at the bank was taken over by a small army of hand-picked men wearing bank guard uniforms. At 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, the conference room began to fill up. Besides the five families of New York, there were representatives from ten other families across the country, with the exception of Chicago, that black sheep of their world. They had given up trying to civilize Chicago, and they saw no point in including those mad dogs in this important conference. A bar had been set up and a small buffet. Each representative to the conference had been allowed one aide. Most of the dons had brought their conciliaries as aides, so there were comparatively few young men in the room. Tom Hagen was one of those young men and the only one who was not Sicilian. He was an object of curiosity, a freak. Hagen knew his manners. He did not speak. He did not smile. He waited on his boss, Don Corleone, with all the respect of a favorite earl waiting on his king, bringing him a cold drink, lighting his cigar, positioning his ashtray, with respect but no obsequiousness. Hagen was the only one in that room who knew the identity of the portraits hanging on the dark paneled walls. They were mostly portraits of fabulous financial figures done in rich oils. One was of Secretary of the Treasury Hamilton. Hagen could not help thinking that Hamilton might have approved of this peace meeting being held in a banking institution. Nothing was more calming, more conducive to pure reason than the atmosphere of money. The arrival time had been staggered for between 9.30 to 10 a.m. Don Corleone, in a sense the host, since he had initiated the peace talks, had been the first to arrive. One of his many virtues was punctuality. The next to arrive was Carlo Tramonte, who had made the southern part of the United States his territory. He was an impressively handsome middle-aged man, tall for a Sicilian, with a very deep sunburn, exquisitely tailored and barbered. He did not look Italian. He looked more like one of those pictures in the magazines of millionaire fishermen lolling on their yachts. The Tramonte family earned its livelihood from gambling, and no one meeting their Don would ever guess with what ferocity he had won his empire. Emigrating from Sicily as a small boy, he had settled in Florida and grown to manhood there, employed by the American syndicate of southern small-town politicians who controlled gambling. These were very tough men, backed up by very tough police officials, and they never suspected that they could be overthrown by such a greenhorn immigrant. They were unprepared for his ferocity and could not match it, simply because the rewards being fought over were not, to their minds, worth so much bloodshed. Tremonti won over the police with bigger shares of the gross. He exterminated those redneck hooligans who ran their operation with such a complete lack of imagination. It was Tremonti who opened ties with Cuba and the Batista regime and eventually poured money into the pleasure resorts of Havana gambling houses, whorehouses, to lure gamblers from the American mainland. Tremonti was now a millionaire many times over and owned one of the most luxurious hotels in Miami Beach. When he came into the conference room, followed by his aide, an equally sunburned consigliere, Tremonti embraced Don Corleone, made a face of sympathy to show he sorrowed for the dead son. Other Dons were arriving. They all knew each other. They had met over the years, either socially or when in the pursuit of their businesses. They had always showed each other professional courtesies, and in their younger, leaner days had done each other little services. The second Don to arrive was Joseph Zaluki from Detroit. The Zaluki family, under appropriate disguises and covers, owned one of the horse racing tracks in the Detroit area. They also owned a good part of the gambling. Zaluki was a moon-faced, amiable-looking man who lived in a $100,000 house in the fashionable Gross Point section of Detroit. One of his sons had married into an old, well-known American family. Zaluki, like Don Corleone, was sophisticated. Detroit had the lowest incidence of physical violence of any of the cities controlled by the families. There had been only two executions in the last three years in that city. He disapproved of traffic in drugs. 
Saluki had brought his consigliere with him, and both men came to Don Corleone to embrace him. Saluki had a booming American voice with only the slightest trace of an accent. He was conservatively dressed, very businessman, and with a hearty goodwill to match. He said to Don Corleone, Only your voice could have brought me here. Don Corleone bowed his head in thanks. He could count on Zaluki for support. The next two Dons to arrive were from the West Coast, motoring from there in the same car, since they worked together closely in any case. They were Frank Falcone and Anthony Molinari, and both were younger than any of the other men who would come to the meeting, in their early forties. They were dressed a little more informally than the others. There was a touch of Hollywood in their style, and they were a little more friendly than necessary. Frank Falcone controlled the movie unions and the gambling at the studios, plus a complex of pipeline prostitution that supplied girls to the whorehouses of the states in the far west. It was not in the realm of possibility for any Don to become showbiz, but Falcone had just a touch. His fellow Dons distrusted him accordingly. Anthony Molinari controlled the waterfronts of San Francisco and was preeminent in the empire of sports gambling. He came of Italian fisherman stock and owned the best San Francisco seafood restaurant, in which he took such pride that the legend had it he lost money on the enterprise by giving too good value for the prices charged. He had the impassive face of the professional gambler, and it was known that he also had something to do with dope smuggling over the Mexican border and from the ships plying the lanes of the Oriental Oceans. Their aides were young, powerfully built men, obviously not counselors, but bodyguards, though they would not dare to carry arms to this meeting. It was general knowledge that these bodyguards knew karate, a fact that amused the other dons but did not alarm them in the slightest, no more than if the California dons had come wearing amulets blessed by the Pope, though it must be noted that some of these men were religious and believed in God. Next arrived the representative from the family in Boston. This was the only don who did not have the respect of his fellows. He was known as a man who did not do right by his people, who cheated them unmercifully. This could be forgiven. Each man measures his own greed. What could not be forgiven was that he could not keep order in his empire. The Boston area had too many murders, too many petty wars for power, too many unsupported freelance activities. It flouted the law too brazenly. If the Chicago Mafia were savages, then the Boston people were gavunis, or uncouth louts, ruffians. The Boston Don's name was Dominic Panza. He was short, squat. As one Don put it, he looked like a thief. The Cleveland Syndicate, perhaps the most powerful of the strictly gambling operations in the United States, was represented by a sensitive-looking elderly man with gaunt features and snow-white hair. He was known, of course, not to his face, as the Jew, because he had surrounded himself with Jewish assistants rather than Sicilians. It was even rumored that he would have named a Jew as his consigliere if he had dared. In any case, as Don Corleone's family was known as the Irish Gang, because of Hagen's membership, so Don Vincent Forlenza's family was known as the Jewish family, with somewhat more accuracy. But he ran an extremely efficient organization, and he was not known ever to have fainted at the sight of blood, despite his sensitive features. He ruled with an iron hand in a velvet political glove. The representatives of the five families of New York were the last to arrive, and Tom Hagen was struck by how much more imposing, impressive, these five men were than the out-of-towners, the Hicks. For one thing, the five New York Dons were in the old Sicilian tradition. They were men with a belly, meaning figuratively power and courage, and literally physical flesh, as if the two went together, as indeed they seem to have done in Sicily. The five New York Dons were stout, corpulent men with massive leonine heads, features on a large scale, fleshy imperial noses, thick mouths, heavy folded cheeks. 
They were not too well tailored or barbered. They had the look of no-nonsense, busy men without vanity. There was Anthony Stracci, who controlled the New Jersey area and the shipping on the west side docks of Manhattan. He ran the gambling in Jersey and was very strong with the Democratic political machine. He had a fleet of freight-hauling trucks that made him a fortune primarily because his trucks could travel with a heavy overload and not be stopped and fined by highway weight inspectors. These trucks helped ruin the highways, and then his road-building firm, with lucrative state contracts, repaired the damage wrought. It was the kind of operation that would warm any man's heart, business of itself, creating more business. Stracci, too, was old-fashioned and never dealt in prostitution. But because his business was on the waterfront, it was impossible for him not to be involved in the drug-smuggling traffic. Of the five New York families opposing the Corleones, his was the least powerful, but the most well-disposed. The family that controlled Upper New York State that arranged smuggling of Italian immigrants from Canada, all upstate gambling, and exercised veto power on state licensing of racing tracks was headed by Ottilio Cuneo. This was a completely disarming man with the face of a jolly, round peasant baker whose legitimate activity was one of the big milk companies. Cuneo was one of those men who loved children and carried a pocketful of sweets in the hopes of being able to pleasure one of his many grandchildren or the small offspring of his associates. He wore a round fedora with the brim turned down all the way round like a woman's sun hat, which broadened his already moon-shaped face into the very mask of joviality. He was one of the few dons who had never been arrested and whose true activities had never even been suspected, so much so that he had served on civic committees and had been voted as Businessman of the Year for the state of New York by the Chamber of Commerce. The closest ally to the Tattaglia family was Don Emilio Barzini. He had some of the gambling in Brooklyn and some in Queens. He had some prostitution. He had strong arm. He completely controlled Staten Island. He had some of the sports betting in the Bronx and Westchester. He was in narcotics. He had close ties to Cleveland and the West Coast, and he was one of the few men shrewd enough to be interested in Las Vegas and Reno, the open cities of Nevada. He also had interests in Miami Beach and Cuba. After the Corleone family, his was perhaps the strongest in New York and therefore in the country. His influence reached even to Sicily. His hand was in every unlawful pie. He was even rumored to have a toehold in Wall Street. He had supported the Tattaglia family with money and influence since the start of the war. It was his ambition to supplant Don Corleone as the most powerful and respected mafia leader in the country and to take over part of the Corleone empire. He was a man much like Don Corleone, but more modern, more sophisticated, more businesslike. He could never be called an old mustache Pete, and he had the confidence of the newer, younger, brasher leaders on their way up. He was a man of great personal force, in a cold way, with none of Don Corleone's warmth, and he was perhaps at this moment the most respected man in the group. The last to arrive was Don Philip Tattaglia, the head of the Tattaglia family that had directly challenged the Corleone power by supporting Salazzo, and had so nearly succeeded. And yet, curiously enough, he was held in a slight contempt by the others. For one thing, it was known that he had allowed himself to be dominated by Salazzo, had in fact been led by the nose by that fine Turkish hand. He was held responsible for all this commotion, this uproar, that had so affected the conduct of everyday business by the New York families. Also, he was a 60-year-old dandy and woman chaser, and he had ample opportunity to indulge his weaknesses for the Tattaglia family dealt in women. Its main business was prostitution. It also controlled most of the nightclubs in the United States and could place any talent anywhere in the country. Philip Tattaglia was not above using strong arm to get control of promising singers and comics and muscling in on record firms, but prostitution was the main source of the family income. 
His personality was unpleasant to these men. He was a whiner, always complaining of the costs in his family business. Laundry bills, all those towels ate up the profits, but he owned the laundry firm that did the work. The girls were lazy and unstable, running off, committing suicide. The pimps were treacherous and dishonest and without a shred of loyalty. Good help was hard to find. Young lads of Sicilian blood turned up their noses at such work, considered it beneath their honor to traffic and abuse women. Those rascals who would slit a throat with a song in their lips and the cross of an Easter palm in the lapel of their jackets. So, Philip Tatalia would rant on to audiences unsympathetic and contemptuous. His biggest howl was reserved for authorities who had it in their power to issue and cancel liquor licenses for his nightclubs and cabarets. He swore he had made more millionaires than Wall Street with the money he had paid those thieving guardians of official seals. In a curious way, his almost victorious war against the Corleone family had not won him the respect it deserved. They knew his strength had come first from Salazzo and then from the Barzini family. Also, the fact that with the advantage of surprise, he had not won complete victory was evidence against him. If he had been more efficient, all this trouble could have been avoided. The death of Don Corleone would have meant the end of the war. It was proper, since they had both lost sons in their war against each other, that Don Corleone and Philip Tattaglia should acknowledge each other's presence only with a formal nod. Don Corleone was the object of attention, the other men studying him to see what mark of weakness had been left on him by his wounds and defeats. The puzzling factor was why Don Corleone had sued for peace after the death of his favorite son. It was an acknowledgment of defeat. It would almost surely lead to a lessening of his power. But they would soon know. There were greetings. There were drinks to be served. And almost another half hour went by before Don Corleone took his seat at the polished walnut table. Unobtrusively, Hagen sat in the chair slightly to the Don's left and behind him. This was the signal for the other Don's to make their way to the table. Their aides sat behind them, the consigliere up close, so that they could offer any advice when needed. Don Corleone was the first to speak, and he spoke as if nothing had happened, as if he had not been grievously wounded and his eldest son slain, his empire in a shambles, his personal family scattered, Freddy in the west and under the protection of the Molinari family, and Michael secreted in the wastelands of Sicily. He spoke, naturally, in Sicilian dialect. I want to thank you all for coming. I consider it a service done to me personally, and I am in the debt of each and every one of you. And so, I will say at the beginning that I am here not to quarrel or convince, but only to reason, and, as a reasonable man, do everything possible for us all, to part friends here, too. I give my word on that, and some of you who know me well know that I do not give my word lightly. Ah, well, let's get down to business. We are all honorable men here. We don't have to give each other assurances as if we were lawyers. He paused. None of the others spoke. Some were smoking cigars, others sipping their drinks. All of these men were good listeners, patient men. They had one other thing in common. They were those rarities, men who had refused to accept the rule of organized society, men who refused the dominion of other men. There was no force, no mortal man who could bend them to their will unless they wished it. They were men who guarded their free will with wiles and murder. Their wills could be subverted only by death or the utmost reasonableness. Don Corleone sighed. How did things ever go so far? Well, no matter. A lot of foolishness has come to pass. It was so unfortunate, so unnecessary. 
Let me tell what happened as I see it. He paused to see if someone would object to his telling his side of the story. Thank God my health has been restored and maybe I can help set this affair aright. Perhaps my son was too rash, too headstrong. I don't say no to that. Anyway, let me just say that Salazzo came to me with a business affair in which he asked me for my money and my influence. He said he had the interest of the Tataria family. The affair involved drugs, in which I have no interest. I'm a quiet man, and such endeavors are too lively for my taste. I explained this to Salazzo. With all respect for him and the Tataria family, I gave him my no, with all courtesy. I told him his business would not interfere with mine, that I had no objection to his earning his living in this fashion. He took it ill and brought misfortune down on all our heads. Well, that's life. Everyone here could tell his own tale of sorrow. That's not to my purpose. Don Corleone paused and motioned to Hagen for a cold drink, which Hagen swiftly furnished him. Don Corleone wet his mouth. I'm willing to make the peace. Tataria has lost his son. I have lost his son. We are quits. What would the world come to if people kept carrying grudges against all reason? That has been the cross of Sicily, where men are so busy with vendettas they have no time to earn bread for their families. It's foolishness. So, I say now, let things be as they were before. I have not taken any steps to learn who betrayed and killed my son. Given peace, I will not do so. I have a son who cannot come home when I must receive assurances that when I arrange matters so that he can return safely, that there will be no interference, no danger from the authorities. Once that's settled, maybe we can talk about other matters that interest us and do ourselves, all of us, a profitable service today. Corleone gestured expressively, submissively with his hands. That is all I want. It was very well done. It was the Don Corleone of old, reasonable, pliant, soft-spoken. But every man there had noted that he had claimed good health, which meant he was a man not to be held cheaply despite the misfortunes of the Corleone family. It was noted that he had said the discussion of other business was useless until the peace he asked for was given. It was noted that he had asked for the old status quo, that he would lose nothing despite his having got the worst of it over the past year. However, it was Emilio Barzini who answered Don Corleone, not Tatalia. He was curt and to the point without being rude or insulting. That is all true enough, but there's a little more. Don Corleone is too modest. The fact is that Solazzo and the Tatalias could not go into their new business without the assistance of Don Corleone. In fact, his disapproval injured them. That's not his fault, of course. The fact remains that the judges and politicians who would accept the favors from Don Corleone, even on drugs, would not allow themselves to be influenced by anybody else when it came to narcotics. Salazzo couldn't operate if he didn't have some insurance of his people being treated gently. We all know that. We would all be poor men otherwise. And now that they have increased the penalties... The judges and the prosecuting attorneys drive a hard bargain when one of our people get in trouble with the narcotics. Even a Sicilian sentenced to 20 years might break the omertar and talk his brains out.
That can't happen. Don Corleone controls all that apparatus. His refusal to let us use it is not the act of a friend. He takes the bread out of the mouths of our families. Times have changed. It's not like the old days when everyone can go his own way. If Corleone has all of the judges in New York, then he must share them or let us others use them. Certainly he can present a bill for such services. <laughs> We're not communists, after all. Eh? <laughs> but he has to let us draw water from the well. It's that simple. When Barzini had finished talking, there was a silence. The lines were now drawn. There could be no return to the old status quo. What was more important was that Barzini, by speaking out, was saying that if peace was not made, he would openly join the Tatalias in their war against the Corleone. And he had scored a telling point. Their lives and their fortunes depended upon their doing each other's services. The denial of a favor asked by a friend was an act of aggression. Favors were not asked lightly, and so could not be lightly refused. Don Corleone finally spoke to answer. My friends, I didn't refuse out of spite. You all know me. When have I ever refused an accommodation? That's simply not in my nature. But I had to refuse this time. Why? Because I think this drug business will destroy us in the years to come. There's too much strong feeling about such traffic in this country. It's not like whiskey or gambling or even women, which most people want and is forbidden them by the Petsonavanti of the church and the government. But drugs are dangerous for everyone connected with them. It could jeopardize all other business. And let me say, I am flattered by the belief that I am so powerful with the judges and law officials, and I wish it were true. I do have some influence, but many of the people who respect my counsel might lose this respect if drugs become involved in our relationship. They are afraid to be involved in such business, and they have strong feelings about it. Even policemen who help us in gambling and other things would refuse to help us in drugs. So, to ask me to perform a service in these matters is to ask me to do a disservice to myself. But I'm willing to do even that. If all of you think it proper in order to adjust other matters. When Don Corleone had finished speaking, the room became much more relaxed with more whisperings and crosstalk. He had conceded the important point. He would offer his protection to any organized business venture in drugs. He was, in effect, agreeing almost entirely to Salazzo's original proposal if that proposal was endorsed by the national group gathered here. It was understood that he would never participate in the operational phase, nor would he invest his money. He would merely use his protective influence with the legal apparatus. But this was a formidable concession. The Don of Los Angeles, Frank Falcone, spoke to answer. There's no way of stopping our people from going into that business. They go in on their own, and they get in trouble. There's too much money in it to resist. So it's more dangerous if we don't go in. At least if we control it, we can cover it better, organize it better, make sure it causes less trouble. Being in it is not so bad. There has to be control. There has to be protection. There has to be organization. We can't have everybody running around doing just what they please, like a bunch of anarchists. The Don of Detroit, more friendly to Corleone than any of the others, also now spoke against his friend's position in the interest of reasonableness. I don't believe in drugs. For years I paid my people extra so they wouldn't do that kind of business. 
But it didn't matter. It didn't help. Somebody comes to them and says, I have powders. If you put up the three, four thousand dollar investment, we can make fifty thousand distributing. Who can resist such a profit? And they are so busy with their little side business, they neglect the work I pay them to do. There's more money in drugs. It's getting bigger all the time. There's no way to stop it, so we have to control the business and keep it respectable. I don't want any of it near schools. I don't want any of it sold to children. That is an infamita. In my city, I would try to keep the traffic in the dark, people. The colored. They are the best customers, the least troublesome, and they are animals anyway. They have no respect for their wives or their families or for themselves. Let them lose their souls with drugs. But something has to be done. We just can't let people do as they please and make trouble for everyone. This speech of the Detroit Don was received with loud murmurs of approval. He had hit the nail on the head. You couldn't even pay people to stay out of the drug traffic. As for his remarks about children, that was his well-known sensibility, his tender-heartedness speaking. After all, who would sell drugs to children? Where would children get the money? As for his remarks about the coloreds, that was not even heard. The Negroes were considered of absolutely no account, of no force whatsoever. That they had allowed society to grind them into the dust proved them of no account, and his mentioning them in any way proved that the Don of Detroit had a mind that always wavered toward irrelevancies. All the Dons spoke. All of them deplored the traffic in drugs as a bad thing that would cause trouble, but agreed there was no way to control it. There was simply too much money to be made in the business. Therefore, it followed that there would be men who would dare anything to dabble in it. That was human nature. It was finally agreed. Drug traffic would be permitted, and Don Corleone must give it some legal protection in the East. It was understood that the Barzini and Tatalia families would do most of the large-scale operations. With this out of the way, the conference was able to move on to other matters of a wider interest. There were many complex problems to be solved. It was agreed that Las Vegas and Miami were to be open cities where any of the families could operate. They all recognized that these were the cities of the future. It was also agreed that no violence would be permitted in these cities and that petty criminals of all types were to be discouraged. It was agreed that in momentous affairs, in executions that were necessary but might cause too much of a public outcry, the execution must be approved by this council. It was agreed that button men and other soldiers were to be restrained from violent crimes and acts of vengeance against each other on personal matters. It was agreed that families would do each other services when requested, such as providing executioners technical assistance in pursuing certain courses of action, such as bribing jurors, which in some instances could be vital. These discussions, informal, colloquial, and on a high level, took time and were broken by lunch and drinks from the buffet bar. Finally, Don Barzini sought to bring the meeting to an end. That's the whole matter, then. We have the peace, and let me pay my respects to Don Corleone, whom we have all known over the years as a man of his word. If there are any more differences, we can meet again. We need not become foolish again. On my part, the road is new and fresh. I'm glad this is all settled. Only Philip Tatalia was a little worried still. The murder of Santino Corleone made him the most vulnerable person in this group if war broke out again. He spoke at length for the first time. I've agreed to everything here. I'm willing to forget my own misfortune. But I would like to hear some strict assurances from Corleone. Will he attempt any individual vengeance? When time goes by, 
and his position perhaps becomes stronger. Will he forget that we have sworn our friendship? How am I to know that in three or four years he won't feel that he's been ill-served, forced against his will to this agreement, and so free to break it? Will we have to guard against each other all the time? Or can we truly go in peace with peace of mind? Would Corleone give us all his assurances, as I now give mine? It was then that Don Corleone gave the speech that would be long remembered, and that reaffirmed his position as the most far-seeing statesman among them, so full of common sense, so direct from the heart into the heart of the matter. In it, he coined a phrase that was to become as famous, in its way, as Churchill's Iron Curtain, though not public knowledge until more than ten years later. For the first time, he stood up to address the council. He was short and a little thin from his illness. Perhaps his sixty years showed a bit more, but there was no question that he had regained all his former strength and had all his wits. What matter of men are we, then, if we do not have our reason? We are all no better than beasts in a jungle, if that were the case. But we have reason. We can reason with each other, and we can reason with ourselves. To what purpose would I start all these troubles again, the violence and the turmoil? My son is dead, and that is the misfortune, and I must bear it, not make the innocent world around me suffer with me. And so I say, I give my honor that I will never seek vengeance. I will never seek knowledge of the deeds that have been done in the past. I will leave here with a pure heart. Let me say that we must always look to our interests. We are all men who have refused to be fools, who have refused to be puppets dancing on a string, pulled by the men on high. We have been fortunate here in this country. Already most of our children have found a better life. Some of you have sons who are professors, scientists, musicians. And you are fortunate. Perhaps... Your grandchildren will become the new Pesinovanti. None of us here want to see our children following our footsteps. It's too hard a life. They can be as others. Their position and security won by our courage. I have grandchildren now, and I hope their children may someday, who knows, be a governor, a president. Nothing's impossible here in America. But we have to progress with the times. The time has passed for guns and killings and massacres. We have to be cunning, like the business people. There's more money in it, and it's better for our children and our grandchildren. As for our own deeds, we are not responsible for the 90 calibers, the pets and the bodies who take it upon themselves to decide what we shall do with our lives, who declare wars they wish us to fight in to protect what they own. Who is to say we should obey the laws they make for their own interests? And to our hurt. And who are they, then, to meddle when we look after our own interests? Sono cosa nostra. These are our own affairs. We will manage our world for ourselves because it is our world, cosa nostra. And so, we have to stick together to guard against outside meddlers. Otherwise, they will put the ring in our nose as they have put the ring on the nose of all the millions of Neapolitans and other Italians in this country. For this reason, I forego my vengeance for my dead son. 
for the common good. I swear, now that as long as I am responsible for the actions of my family, there will not be one finger lifted against any man here without just cause and utmost provocation. I am willing to sacrifice my commercial interests for the common good. This is my word. This is my honor. And there are those of you here who know I have never betrayed either. Monk, I have a selfish interest. My youngest son had to flee, accused of Salazzo's murder and that of a police captain. I must now make arrangements so that he can come home with safety, cleared of all these false charges. That is my affair, and I will make those arrangements. I must find the real culprits, perhaps, or perhaps I must convince the authorities of his innocence. Perhaps the witnesses and informants will recant their lies. But again, I say, this is my affair, and I believe I will be able to bring my son home. But let me say this. I am a superstitious man, a ridiculous feeling, but I must confess it here. And so if some unlucky accident should befall my youngest son, if some police officer should accidentally shoot him, if he should hang himself in his cell, if new witnesses appear to testify to his guilt, my superstition will make me feel that it was the result of the ill will still borne me by some people here. Let me go further. If my son is struck by a bolt of lightning, I will blame some of the people here. If his plane should fall into the sea, or his ship sink beneath the waves of the ocean, if he should catch a mortal fever, if his automobile should be struck by a train, such is my superstition that I would blame the ill will felt by people here. Gentlemen, that ill will, that bad luck, I could never forgive. But... Aside from that, let me swear by the souls of my grandchildren that I will never break the peace we have made. After all, are we or are we not better men than those Pezzonavanti who have killed countless millions of men in our lifetime? With this, Don Corleone stepped from his place and went down the table to where Don Philip Tatalia was sitting. Tatalia rose to greet him, and the two men embraced, kissing each other's cheeks. The other dons in the room applauded and rose to shake hands with everybody in sight and to congratulate Don Corleone and Don Tatalia on their new friendship. It was not perhaps the warmest friendship in the world. They would not send each other Christmas gift greetings, but they would not murder each other. That was friendship enough in this world, all that was needed. Since his son Freddy was under the protection of the Molinari family in the West, Don Corleone lingered with the San Francisco Don after the meeting to thank him. Bolinati said enough for Don Corleone to gather that Freddy had found his niche out there, was happy, and had become something of a ladies' man. He had a genius for running a hotel, it seemed. Don Corleone shook his head in wonder, as many fathers do, when told of undreamed-of talents in their children. Wasn't it true that sometimes the greatest misfortunes brought unforeseen rewards? They both agreed that this was so. Meanwhile, Corleone made it clear to the San Francisco Don that he was in his debt for the great service done in protecting Freddy. He let it be known that his influence would be exerted so that the important racing wires would always be available to his people, no matter what changes occurred in the power structure in the years to come. An important guarantee, since the struggle over this facility was a constant open wound, complicated by the fact that the Chicago people had their heavy hand in it. But Don Corleone was not without influence even in the land of barbarians, and so his promise was a gift of gold.
It was evening before Don Corleone, Tom Hagen, and the bodyguard chauffeur, who happened to be Rocco Lampone, arrived at the mall in Long Beach. When they went into the house, the Don said to Hagen, Our driver, that man Lampone, keep an eye on him. He's a fellow worth something better, I think. Hagen wondered at this remark. Lampone had not said a word all day, had not even glanced at the two men in the back seat. He had opened the door for the Don. The car had been in front of the bank when they emerged. He had done everything correctly, but no more than any well-trained chauffeur might do. Evidently, the Don's eye had seen something he had not seen. The Don dismissed Hagen and told him to come back to the house after supper, but to take his time and rest a little, since they would put in a long night of discussion. He also told Hagen to have Clemenza and Tessio present. They should come at 10 p.m., not before. Hagen was to brief Clemenza and Tessio on what had happened at the meeting that afternoon. At ten, the Don was waiting for the three men in his office, the corner room of the house with its law library and special phone. There was a tray with whiskey bottles, ice, and soda water. The Don gave his instructions. We made the peace this afternoon. I gave my word and my honor, and that should be enough for all of you. But our friends are not so trustworthy, so let's all be on our guard still. We don't want any more nasty little surprises. The Don turned to Hagen. You've let the Bukikio hostages go? Hagen nodded. I called Clemenza as soon as I got home. Corleone turned to the massive Clemenza. The Capo Regime nodded. I released them. Tell me, Godfather, is it possible for Sicilian to be as dumb as the Bukikios pretend to be? Don Corleone smiled a little. They are clever enough to make a good living. Why is it so necessary to be more clever than that? It's not the Bukikios who cause the troubles of this world, but it's true. They haven't got the Sicilian head. They were all in a relaxed mood now that the war was over. Don Corleone himself mixed drinks and brought one to each man. The Don sipped his carefully and lit up a cigar. I want nothing set forth to discover what happened to Sonny. That's done with and to be forgotten. I want all cooperation with the other families, even if they become a little greedy and we don't get our proper share in things. I want nothing to break this peace, no matter what the provocation, until we found a way to bring Michael home. And I want that to be first thing on your minds. Remember this. When he comes back, he must come back in absolute safety. I don't mean from the Tatarias or the Barzinis. What I'm concerned about are the police. Sure, we can get rid of the real evidence against them. That waiter won't testify, nor that spectator or gunman or whatever he was. The real evidence is the least of our worries since we know about it. What we have to worry about is the police framing false evidence because their informers have assured them that Michael Corleone is the man who killed their captain. Very well. We have to demand that the five families do everything in their power to correct this belief of the police. All their informers who work with the police must come up with new stories. I think... After my speech this afternoon, they will understand it is to their interest to do so. But that's not enough. We have to come up with something special, so Michael won't ever have to worry about that again. Otherwise, there's no point in him coming back to this country. So let's all think about that. That's the most important matter. Now, any man should be allowed one foolishness in his life. I have had mine. I want all the land around the mall bought, the houses bought. I don't want any man able to look out his window into my garden, even if it's a mile away. I want a fence 
around the mall, and I want the mall to be on full protection all the time. I want a gate in that fence. In short, I wish now to live in a fortress. Let me say to you now that I will never go into this city to work again. I will be semi-retired. I feel an urge to work in the garden, to make a little wine when the grapes are in season. I want to live in my house. The only time I leave is to go on a little vacation or to see someone on important business, and then I want all precautions taken. Now, don't take this amiss. I'm not preparing anything. I'm being prudent. I've always been a prudent man. There's nothing I find so little to my taste as carelessness in life. Women and children can afford to be careless. Men cannot. Be leisurely. In all these things, no frantic preparations to alarm our friends. It can be done in such a way as to seem natural. Now, I'm going to leave things more and more up to each of you three. I want the Santino regime disbanded and the men placed in your regimes. And that should reassure our friends and show that I mean peace. Tom, I want you to put together a group of men who will go to Las Vegas and give me a full report on what is going on out there. Tell me about Fredo, what's really happening out there. I hear I wouldn't recognize my own son. It seems he's a cook now, that he amuses himself with young girls more than a grown man should. Well... He was always too serious when he was young, and he was never the man for family business. But let's find out what really can be done out there. Hagen said quietly, Should we send your son-in-law? After all, Carlo is a native of Nevada. He knows his way around. Don Corleone shook his head. No. My wife is lonely here without any of her children. I want Constanze and her husband moved into one of the houses on the mall. I want Carlo given a responsible job. Maybe I've been too harsh on him, and... Don Corleone made a grimace. I'm short of sons. Take him out of the gambling and put him in with the unions where he can do some paperwork and a lot of talking. He's a good talker. There was the tiniest note of contempt in the Don's voice. Hagen nodded. Okay, Clemenza and I will go over all the people and put together a group to do the Vegas job. Do you want me to call Freddy home for a few days? The Don shook his head. What for? My wife can still cook our meals. Let him stay out there. The three men shifted uneasily in their seats. They had not realized Freddy was in such severe disfavor with his father, and they suspected it must be because of something they did not know. Don Corleone sighed. I hope to grow some good green peppers and tomatoes in the garden this year. More than we can eat. I'll make you presents of them. I want a little peace. A little quiet and tranquility from my old age. Well, that's all. Have another drink if you like. It was a dismissal. The men rose. Hagen accompanied Clemenza and Tessio to their cars and arranged meetings with them to thrash out the operational details that would accomplish the stated desires of their Don. Then he went back into the house, where he knew Don Corleone would be waiting for him. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.